Hello, and welcome back to a brand new season of Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is J. Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I am thrilled. Thank you for being a fan. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable, because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at J. Claude Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and some brand new merch, including a quietly dignified Things Are Going Great For Me coffee mug. Look, I'll be the one to tell you this because I worry about you. You need a new coffee mug. Four of the ones in your cabinet right now are chipped. It's time. We've also got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, and even a Things Are Going Great For Me safety mask, folks. So check them out and listen in comfort, style, and good health. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at Things Are Going Great For Me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from both our Season 1 and Season 2 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they're adjusting to life in our seemingly unending quarantine and how it's changing life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, making it naturally alkaline with the perfect balance of dissolved minerals for taste and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial bottled water, natural spring water, sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, tell your aunt about us, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcasts from today. Hey, Apple Podcast peeps, we see you, Spotify folks. Hey now, Stitcher fam. What's up, you freaky pocket casts cats? Hey, Breaker brethren and sistren. Salutations, radio public people. Hello, you overcast outroverts. Welcome to the party, Google Podcasters. Good day, Good Pods gang. We love you all equally, and we hope you love what you hear, and we want to keep bringing you new episodes of this show. Maybe one day we'll be bought by one of these companies and we'll have to swear allegiance to a single corporation. But for now, we aren't playing any favorites. Except for you, Spreaker. You have a devil-may-care attitude about phonetics, and let's just say, I'm inveigled. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. Here's a little recap of season one. My grandmother was an actress in the 30s and 40s, and I introduced my mom to Quentin. Quentin knows everything about my grandmother. And I was like, oh my God, Lin-Manuel Miranda watches our show. Yeah. And everybody at work was like, who dat? And I was like, ugh. Oh, really? Man. <laughs> yeah, because Hamilton hadn't come out yet. Meanwhile, the older kid is like freaking out because his mom's making these sounds like, ugh, and he goes, ugh. He doesn't know what the hell's <laughs> happening. It's not a homophobic joke. Like, it's not. It's just, um, it's just, okay. Like, I, I, they're doing stuff that's like, it's, it's that thing where you realize like the comic minds behind it. You see their, you see their limitations with themselves. Isn't it cool I get to say that I won a Pulitzer? It's amazing. I mean, I didn't totally. I was part of the staff and the two producers who made the story that won or who we technically say won. But I think I could say it on like a hinge date. <laughs> Today's first guest is Patrick Adams. 
I've known Patrick a long time. He is brilliant, funny, and thoughtful. We talk about his work on Suits and his latest Nat Geo series, The Right Stuff, where he plays astronaut John Glenn. Getting his first movie role while in college in Will Ferrell's old school and almost losing the job because of his Canadian citizenship. He had 24 hours to create an internship at USC in order to keep it. We talk royal weddings, flying airplanes. It's a wide-ranging and interesting talk. I'll be speaking with Patrick in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Michael Benz. This is my favorite interview of this entire season. Mike and I went to high school together. We talk about his new Apple Plus series for All Mankind, his work as a child actor for the BBC, his Georgetown days hanging out with John Mulaney, his training at RADA, starring as Hamlet for Shakespeare's Globe, doing The Tempest with Ray Fiennes, being shot to death by Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. He plays one of the Wall Street Three his work on Broadway with Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon in Little Foxes, goofing around with Paul Giamatti on the set of Downton Abbey, and getting shushed by Maggie Smith, and if that's not enough, getting discovered by Tom Hanks twice. (laughs) Michael will be a household name soon. It's a wonderful chat. Stick around for this interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. That was fun. That that last for for the Michael Benz one. It's like a list of like the next like version of like Valentine's Day, like one of those movies. You know, it's like oh, with like just all Tom the Hanks and Maggie Smith, yeah. Steve-O, and because yeah, Steve-O comes up. Mm. Um, that's right. Steve-O, yeah. we went to went to our same high school. So I weird. think he would have fit in with our. There was a there was a crew of folks. I feel like I could see it. I feel like he could. He would have. He would have blended there. I'm sure he found a spot. I'm sure he figured it out. He seems affable. I don't know if he was lighting stuff on fire at high school. We we weren't, but mm. I don't know how crazy I was. he was back then. You were lighting stuff you're, on fire? Your Yeah, your guys' talks made me realize. I was like, oh, I was a bad kid. <laughs> a little were bit. You, were you egging houses and toilet paper? I, I toilet papered some stuff. Uh there's worse there's i was really like my last my senior year i drank a lot like i was partying constantly yeah uh like went to went to class drunk more than once um oh my god really yeah which you wouldn't think because i'm such a sweet i'm just like a real sweetie nice boy but uh and even then i was like still pretty innocent but yeah you guys were like oh we went to the pub and i was like yeah, we were having like 150 person parties and like getting busted by the cops and, like, in high school stuff. in Oklahoma. Yeah. Dang. Yep. Yeah, we were. We were we were going out and and uh, hitting the pub uh, pretty regularly. And yeah, I mean, I did think that that was uh, unique to to where we were living. But I mean, in the States, again, it's like this thing of what I observed, at least when I got back for, uh, into New York for college is that, you know, people had to get someone older to go into a store and get them a bunch of booze. And most of the time it was like, get us the the highest alcohol content. It wasn't like, can you, you weren't buying Coronas. Yeah. There were no IPAs and Saison's. It wasn't a bunch of sophisticates, you know, it was just like, get us the, the, the most damaging alcohol you can routinely miss the urgency of underage drinking and i this i get it listen you shouldn't (laughs) drink young it's bad for your but man there was something about like oh we got booze tonight and then we're just gonna drink every single ounce of it because if someone finds it they'll take it away yeah (laughs) you can't replace people drank Uh, they drank here like they were trying to die uh also i had you guys were talking about uh (laughs) uh Fake IDs, 
And I uh, also in my in my bad boy streak had uh, multiple fake IDs. Uh, oh yeah, oh you did. You had them roommates. in high school. Yeah, I had one in high. I had what did I have? I had one in high school that <laughs> the name was Clarence P. Goodfellow the <laughs> Third, and it worked. Hell? I used it all over the oh, place. Oh my god! And what did people say to you when they Hawaii. looked at that? They'd be like, "What?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, man, that's my name." <laughs> like, I'd just like really like be like, "Yeah, it's a weird name." Like, did no, you have you a mustache back then? Were you one of those kids no, in high school who no. sported like uh, a full no, mustache? No, 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 no. Because I went to Catholic school, so we had I had to like be very like Clarence, very like put together. What was it, uh, Clarence, Clarence P. Goodfellow, P. Goodfellow the third? The third. <laughs> and uh, and then I had another one. I had like a temporary one that I could actually like attach over my actual ID. It was a whole thing. My God, I should say at this point, uh, joining me again this season is my wonderful producer and co-host, Winston Carter. Hey, happy hey, to be here. how you doing? I'm great. I'm great. You know, I've interviewed about 40 people now, uh, all remotely, um, mm-hmm. and you have things happen across a screen that are human out of necessity, and sometimes because of the ease of being in your own home while you're doing an interview, we had... On this season, a number, I mean, across both seasons, we've had a number of dog mm-hmm. co-stars in our episodes. Yep. Uh, this season, we had someone paused for their Uber Eats order to arrive. Um, mm-hmm. Another person Classic. took a break to use the bathroom. More than a few of our guests have these home studio booths as well. And sometimes yeah. there was at least one person whose booth was not very well ventilated. They almost, they started to pass out. <laughs> so we decided to cut together a few of those moments for you all now. If I want to take a piss right now, we can like chop this out and like, <laughs> take a photo. Like, I'm really sorry, dude, but I'm like, if can I just go do that real fast? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ben. Hey, um, I'm gonna jump up and grab my food from the door really quick. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, you told me go go for it. Okay, I'll be right back. It was like food and uh, like people he knew. Sorry, hold on, Zinfandel, stop. His name is, is your Zinfandel. dog's name Zinfandel? Like the yeah. wine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> I didn't name him. I, what question was I answering, Claude? <laughs> you were saying, how are you doing? You okay? <laughs> uh, it's getting warm in here. We didn't put the fans in yet. Um, do you, do you want to take a second? No, 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 no. I just need to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Don't faint on me, please. I, don't, please, I want you to be comfortable. I'm not going to pass out. That I just was forgot. so funny. All right, folks, you have been extraordinarily patient with us while we got done with some housekeeping today. Without further ado, here now is the hugely talented, thoughtful, and brilliant Patrick Johannes Adams. How do, you, how do you feel on social? Do you like social media for yourself, you know, promoting your projects? Or how, have you backed away from it since uh, the early days? Do you, I just you don't think I'm that good at it. You know, is really the truth of it. I, I totally understand its value. Um, and I've had mo- great moments of feeling like this is amazing. Like I can promote something. I can feel connected. I can get the message out there about something that means something to me. Um, so I'm not like a, a complete hater of it. I have a lot of people that just canceled all their accounts and they're done. And I understand that impulse. Um, I'm just not that good at it. It's not my first instinct. And so sometimes when I turn to it, I can feel myself, all the worst parts of myself. I want to impress. I want to get admiration. 
I want to like make a good impression, you know, like I want, I want, I want, I want something from you. I want the world to react to me and give me status. And that is just a danger. I've learned and I've been on the earth long enough to know that that's like a dangerous mindset for me to be in. So when that is how I feel every time I turn to it, that being said, there's moments I'm a photographer too. I don't do it as much because I haven't been taking, thanks man. I haven't been taking as many photos recently, but that was something that didn't feel, that was just me like excited to share a photograph I took Mm -hmm. um, that I, that I just loved. And I was like, Oh, that'd be cool. It looks good here. This felt like a really cool place to share images. And for some reason that didn't do the same thing to me. I didn't feel like I was looking for, you know, there wasn't some attempt to get people to tell me how great I was. Uh, it was just a fun way to share photos with people that I thought were cool. So there's, ver- there's di- it's a gray area. There's different, it's a scale. And sometimes I'm, some days I'm like, yeah, I get this, this is part of it. Um, but it's certainly not my, you know, I don't, I don't, every, every moment I have that's great. I don't go, how do I share this? How do I post it? I'm trying to get better, especially if I get older yeah. to just be in the moment. I mean, if you have moment. a lot of, I, I would say if you have a lot of things that are cool that are going on, I would say that it's probably it's hard to not want to be like, look at this. And then now look at this. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, this. like, I mean, there's something I'm, I started uh, learning to fly this it's I like if this. you go back you'll yeah. see I've, that's probably the few posts that i've done in like the last couple why months are you doing this i've just always wanted to do it and i, I had time <laughs> and so i was like let's do it uh but i love doing it it's like one of the greatest experiences i've had in my life it's a bucket list thing and it has oh been just God. so mind-blowing to go through the whole process you're up there and you're like this is not good this is going down like I, I, there have been a few sketchy moments but the fun for my instructor they're just he's just like yeah that's a bump that's are you in horrible. are you in and thomas like, are, you, are you in thomas middleditch like uh i heard uh, yeah he flies too yeah scenes from top gun together I, what, I so, so what do you fly is it a cessna yeah it's a single engine cessna <sighs> Fuck yeah. that. I was in one of those once and I swear to God, it's like flying in a station wagon at 15,000 feet. It's pretty, it's pretty intense. It's great to be in there with an instructor because he immediately calms you down. You know, anything that he, the plane starts shaking or rolling or dipping in ways and you can tell that for him, it's just a Tuesday. So he, that makes my panic go down. So I've, I've definitely learned like what the plane is capable of doing. And then for fun, sometimes he'll really show me what the plane is capable of doing. He's like, He's like the shaking. If that scares you, hold on, and he'll take it and like dip down, and we'll dive. And oh my like, god! Oh, okay, that's what the plane can do. Right? <laughs> no, no, thanks. Uh, I literally, you know, I think in, you're usually you're white knuckling the. If you're nervous, well, I'm a nervous flyer. I, I yeah. was literally holding the post that my seat was attached to, like as <laughs> like though that was, was going to save you, like that, as though that was going to do anything. When this thing fell out of anything the sky. that feels stable, just hold on. Uh, but anyway, that's a thing that I love, and I wanted to post about it because I was like, this is really exciting. Yeah. And sharing it, but in the moment that I even shared it, I was like this isn't getting it across. Like it's a full-time job now to live on social media. Like if you're going to do it, you have to like, I've seen people do it really well. I know people who do it really well. And I'm like, I'm in awe of it. I think it's really amazing. It's like a live journal up in front of the world and you're creating content and you're managing it. You're knowing how to display it. And it's just moved past me so quickly that I already feel like I'm, you know, 75 years old and trying to figure out how the Nintendo works. Like it just does not feel like it's a good match anymore. It's amazing so, that you're doing that. Yeah. I think it's very yeah. cool. So since I've seen you last, you went to a royal wedding. I did. Lord. Yes. yes. How, was, how was that? It was completely bizarre. It was nerve-wracking. It's, it's, 
I don't even know if I fully processed what occurred there. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so it's unlike you can't really it's it's such a on such a global it's such on the world scale that you can't really figure out what's happening. You're on a one minute you're at a hotel, then you're getting on a bus, you're dressed in these absurd clothes. And on the bus, they're like, okay, you're going to get off. Just know that from the moment you leave the bus to when you get to the church, uh, you know, 4 billion people are watching you on television. All right, oh good luck. God. Have a good day. And you're like, what? Um, you're wearing so, like the, the morning coat or whatever. The yeah, thing. exactly. You had to like yeah. custom coat. It was, it was great. I mean, for me, it was just, you're a part of history. I was so happy for Megan. Um, you know, I was nervous for her. I was like, my God, I was nervous enough on my wedding day to imagine this amount of oh my god uh, craziness surrounding it like it's it's nerve-wracking enough to to have a wedding day but to go through this so publicly i can't imagine and uh and i was so happy for her because i you know we hadn't spoken a lot about about the relationship because obviously it was very private and i didn't want to see it but i know that you know they were deeply in love and that this was a pretty incredible thing so i was just happy to have been invited and be there for the day Absolutely. And yeah. so, and I guess a lot of people see the, the parade and they see the, uh, the wedding ceremony, but I guess what we don't see is there's a brunch, I guess, that the queen throws. Is that right? There was like a little party afterwards. I call it a party. Unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I wish yeah. I knew how Windsor Castle even broke down and where we were. All I know it was this incredibly epic, beautiful room with all like the sigils uh, of like the entire history of the family, there were giant, there was, I don't know if it was like the armory or something, cause there were lots of like um, suits of armor lining. Like, it was just everything that you'd imagine. It was the most spectacular room um, you'd ever been in. And then all of a sudden, you know, and then you're talking to people just riffing and they're like, oh yes, I run Kensington Palace. And you're like, oh, of course you do. Yes, we're just talking <laughs> to you in a room. And uh, and then they're like, okay, you know, suddenly someone comes out on stage to start playing the piano and you're like, oh yeah, that's Elton John. And then Elton wow. John says, you know, Megan, this song, you know, is forever yours now and he plays Tiny Dancer for her and my wow. brain just I remember I turned to Gabriel who's my, my co-star yeah on the show he was suits, across right. the room and I turned to him and both of our eyes were just like what <laughs> is happening what an uh, amazing moment yeah it's incredible so he he played some music Prince Charles gave one of the most beautiful speeches I'd ever heard about his son and how happy he was wow. and then that was it and then we all got on buses and and got out of there so uh so you and I met I think through originally, I think through our friend Will Greenberg, mm -hmm. um, and you'd gone to uh, school with Will at USC um, with a number of folks, some of whom are friends of mine now. What, where does the nickname uh, Patch come from? Oh, Patch, I don't know. I think Patch Adams. I think because that film Patch Adams. So Patrick Adams, Adams became Patch Adams. Patch what Adams. was Patch Adams about? I never saw Patch. The Adams. The doctor who was like a clown who like saved people through comedy. Robin Williams saving people through. I mean, I think I watched it one time, but he was like a doctor that realized that like using comedy and like joy was very helpful to helping kids dealing with like chronic or deadly illnesses. I think I have no idea. <laughs> I still have to see that movie. It's Robin Williams. It's great. I don't. I actually. I don't think it's the finest Williams, but you know he's so good that 
even the like middling Robin Williams films were terrific. Sure, absolutely. Um, so when uh, when I was first getting to know you, as I recall, like your your claim to fame at the time mm. was that you had you taught yourself guitar mm. in order to book a role in the movie Old School with Will Ferrell and Luke Wilson and Vince Vaughn and Rob Corder. That's an interesting. That is an Yes, Rob Corddry. That's an interesting version of the story. <laughs> That's what I was told. Uh, is that the story you were told? That I yeah, yeah, I, yeah, probably from Will. Like, batch, batch, fuck. That sounds like a Will He got that fucking movie. Uh, I that was a weird story. I got. Um, I was at USC. I, I'm Canadian, so uh, I was an international student. They did this big casting thing at USC where they were like, you know, we'll let 50 kids come in an audition. I think they were trying to cast what I ended up being the uh, one of the frat brothers at, at, in the school. So they said, you can come in an audition. I, you know, everybody signed up as fast as they could. I went in, I was really sick that day. I remember uh, they had us read a couple of lines and they kicked us out of the room. I did that, kicked us out of the room. Todd Phillips was there, which was crazy. He must have seen like hundreds of people that day. I, I left and then I never heard anything. I was like, okay, that's over. It's not happening. I went away for Christmas up to Canada. When I came back, my voicemail was like, hey, you've got the part in and old you, school. Did, did you have an agent or anything? Or? No, not, no, no, it was no, just nothing. a message on your phone. I nothing. I, just, I wow. didn't even understand how one, you know, I don't, I didn't understand what a fitting was. I didn't understand anything. I didn't yeah, know the yeah. mechanics of getting a job. They said, you've got the job, but like, where are you? You know, they left a bunch of messages. You need to get down here for a fitting and we need your paperwork and all that. And of course I called them and go, I'm so sorry. I just got this. They're like, it's okay, but you need to send this paperwork. And I was like, oh, okay. Also I'm Canadian. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to work down here. And they're like, they're like, we can't put it. We don't have time to deal with this. So sorry. And they were going to like take the offer away. Oh yeah. And yeah. I had 24 hours to figure out how to make it legal for me to do this job. Cause they were going to pay me. So I had to figure out a way to make it legal. Long story short, I'm running around campus and I figure out the only way to do it is to make it an internship through USC. I have to take a course in which I'm doing an internship and then I'm writing papers and reporting back about my internship. Now, of course, the class is filled with people doing internships at law offices and banks and all this stuff. Are you fucking and, kidding me? And this then is I'm coming in to, and writing papers about doing like KY jelly wrestling scenes with Will Ferrell in a basement. Oh, come on. Yeah, and I, it was the only way that I could legally pull it off. So I signed up for the course. This incredible woman at the International Affairs place was like, uh, she was amazing. She helped me figure out the whole thing in under 24 hours, got them the paperwork, went in and I spent a month on the set of old school. And then the guitar thing was totally random. One day, one of the guys, Scott Budnick, one of the associate producers came up and said, uh, who plays guitar? Because I think they were putting together what they wanted for Blue's funeral which one of you plays guitar? And it was all of the guys, me and Cordry and oh, Eddie yeah. Papatone and everybody. And I put my hand up and <laughs> I heard Scott Budnick who loved giving me a hard time. It was just like anybody else, anybody <laughs> else. And I was the only one who knew how to play guitar. And they're like, all right, oh, So you on. knew how to, oh, this is a much better story. Yeah, I already knew how to play. Much better um, story. But not well, you know, and then here I am, like it was a hobby I had. It was not, I didn't play in front of people. I'm not used to performing. And now all of a sudden it's but like, you knew you're more screens. You're, you're, playing, you're playing. Well, of course I know I want yeah, it, yeah. but I'm terrified because now they're like, all right, you need to learn dust in the wind, which I had never even heard that song. Before. So you're accompanying Will Ferrell and you're going to play with Will Ferrell. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm terrified to be in front of the, this is, I'm not, I don't have a speaking role in this film. I've literally just been the guy like standing in the background holding stuff. Like that's all yeah, I'm doing. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they're like, come on, we're going to rehearse with Will. Uh, you need to be off book tomorrow. And then we're going to shoot the day after. So I'm going home and just going crazy, trying to learn dust in the wind and, and my finger picking, my strumming it. And then of course get to set and they say action. And I just go white. I have no idea what I'm doing. I think I screw up the chords a little bit. Will Ferrell's a pro. He's just singing anyway. And then Todd Phillips comes up after the first take. He's like, yeah, that's good. Just don't fuck it up. <laughs> he stares me dead <laughs> and there's this whole camera move you know it like starts on will and then it goes up over the whole thing so it's like it was very very overwhelming first moment on uh on film but it was amazing was were there i mean that's such a classic to so many people that movie Did, were there any can you remember anything weird, anything funny that people would just love to know from that? Oh my God. Something, did Vince Vaughn lose his temper? Did, did, no, he was, did I, I knew Farrell Vince Vaughn, prank anybody? swingers and stuff. Um, but I couldn't believe how funny Vince Vaughn was. I didn't understand. Will Ferrell, I knew how funny he was and he was that funny. He would make us laugh nonstop. Um, and his improvs were insane. And he's just the nicest guy in the world. But Vince Vaughn was like, he was the one that scared me a little. He's a little edgy. He's a big dude. He's a big dude and he's just got an edge to him. And so <laughs> I, and I knew he was funny, but it seemed like a different kind of funny. It is a different kind of funny. I didn't know that he was as effortlessly funny as Will Ferrell was sometimes cool. more so like, and he would really engage, you know, the, the three guys were so good at, at bringing us all into the, into the mix and like making us feel like we were a part of it. And did you uh, ever did you ever just lose it in the background and they'd have to I mean, I, I would have a hard time keeping a straight face in the background. I think I think the only thing that matched how funny it was, was my terror that I would do something wrong because <laughs> it was the yeah. first time I'd ever been yeah, on a yeah. set. So I just didn't I didn't let it. I mean, we'd break as soon as they yelled cut, we'd fall to pieces, but I kept <laughs> it together. I remember one time I left my cell phone on. There's a scene where the three guys are in a locker room. Sure. It's just Will Ferrell. And Will Ferrell's going bananas. He's going bananas, I think. And I left my bag in there and left my cell phone in it. This is like, it was like, you know, pre-camera on the phone, cell phone, like the little Nokia. And I had the Back to the Future ring on it, which I just thought was the coolest. But the problem was everyone knew I had it. And then... It went off in the middle of their scene and I was outside. My friend came out and Vince is pissed and he was screaming <laughs> about the phone going off. So that was pretty mortifying. But yeah, it was uh, or that the, when we had our when we were up with the blocks attached to our privates that were throwing off. the. Remember that scene? Sure, of course. Yeah, uh, I think at the time um, Luke Wilson was dating Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay. Maybe because they had just shot Royal Tenenbaums or something. So they were together. Oh, okay. And the one night she came to visit was that night. She comes <laughs> out onto the rooftop. We're all, you know, in these socks around our genitals holding these blocks. <laughs> and I remember Gwyneth Paltrow comes out. And she's like, hi, guys. And I was like, of course. <laughs> this, of course is how, this is, this is how I meet you. Of course, this is how. This is demeaning. Um, it was great. It was, you know. It was such a gift. I learned just so much about how sets work from that from that month, and I got an A on all my papers. And Good for you, man! Class. What an incredible intern! I mean, the the greatest internship I've ever heard of. Um, that was great. So you and your college friends used to go to uh, Burning Man. 
every year. <laughs> yeah. And you guys did it the right way. I mean, I don't know what the right way or I have never been, but I know just by looking at the pictures you guys post, like that's the right way to do it. It was, I think we did it. We definitely did it right. The right way. The first took it time. Very, very seriously. Yeah. We bought a school bus and yeah. we spent a few months, um, tearing out all the seats and making it like a cool burning man bus and putting a, a, a cool bus. Yeah. A cool bus and, and put a storage rack on top of it. So we could take all our stuff out. We had a friend who was an engineer who had figured out how to like make these, they call them hexa yurts. So they're like out of construction foam and they fold a certain way so that they're easy to store. And then you get them out there and they become these like reflective huts. So you don't get too hot. I mean, it was pretty wild the, the lengths to which we go, uh, to which we went. Um, and it was incredible. It was just like such an experience. The other years, it was more hodgepodge. The, the bus would go with those guys, but then somebody else would come in for two days. And it was less of that like on mass group experience. Um, but it was always fun and such a wild. Time. What am I missing out on? I feel like I've missed out on something with Burning Man. Crucial part of my 30s that I didn't I didn't do this. And you I can think still I, go. <laughs> you can I don't still know. Go. <laughs> It was, and what are you all doing? You're just doing a bunch of ayahuasca tea and that kind of um, stuff. It, it's you. It's amazing how little you need in the way of mind-altering substances in an environment like that. When it's it 120 so extreme. degrees, it's so extreme, <laughs> and you know, you need water is what you really need. You need water, and how much? I mean, like you've got to be covered head to toe in the the. Um, SPF and all that stuff, right? I yeah, mean, totally. You, totally. you wouldn't I mean, survive. But, but sort of. And then by the end of the week, you're, you know, you start. I, I was never a big costume guy. It's a big part of the culture there is the big, crazy costumes kind of a steam, and outfits. I've guy. never been an outfit guy, so I always kept it pretty basic. But whatever outfit you start Burning Man with, by the end of Burning Man, it is reduced to the most basic version. So, you know, if you start with a cool <laughs> pair of shorts and that shirt and whatever, your nice hat, and you're by the end it's, of it's it, a you're cloth. like like you've got underwear on and you don't know where anything else is and you're, just, and you're totally happy about it and it's fine um it's it it, it was uh it was a really remarkable thing to witness it's it's there's a i mean there's so much to be said about that and there's a lot of downside but um the best thing i ever heard described the way it was put to me was you'll you'll have you're gonna have the best time of your life there and i was like great he's like you're also gonna have the worst time of your life and that's true. It is, it is like, it, it is a lesson in extremes. You're going to see some of the most beautiful mind altering, incredible stuff. And then you're going to have days where you're like, I would pay any amount of money to get out of here. And that's <laughs> part of it. Like, like a bag of uh, Doritos or a, che a cheeseburger. Or yeah. Just somebody give me like a giant cold margarita or something <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and, and some peanuts. So, uh, I would consider that your, uh, I'm going to make this segue work. Watch me do this. Ready? Go, 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 go. That was your like electric Kool-Aid acid test experience of your own. Oh, there you go. Dovetails nicely into your into. latest series <laughs> by the same author, Tom Wolf. Boom. Did it. Nat Geo's The Right Stuff. Oh, that nailed it. Nobody else has been able to bring... Watch that. Go to from Burning Man to the right stuff so well. <laughs> uh, so I watched that series and loved it. I, congratulations on it. I thought it Thanks, was man. very well done. And, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I'm a very big fan of that movie. Yeah, me too. And I haven't read the book because I, I can't read. But the <laughs> film is kind of it, like it's multi-tonal in a way that I find really satisfying. It's really kind of funny and, but it uh -huh. also starts with that hero journey of the jaeger uh, -huh. uh, mm -hmm. uh character and i but so i would say that you know like 
what I came away with was that this this series was a little more straightforward in terms of narrative tone. Totally. But another wonderful ensemble of actors and um, I guess a bit more time exploring some of the physical and emotional trials that the men went through and the relationship issues between yeah. them and, and with their with their wives. Yeah, and getting into the psychology, you know, the, the film is brilliant, but it's two and a half hour, three hours long. Oh, yeah. And that's that's the only problem with it is that there's so much story here about these guys and their relationships and the psychology of what it takes that that the opportunity we had was to just spend more time and investigate more of these stories that you know have you know gone untold except for in the book and other books that have been written about it so um yeah you know part of the heartbreak of it is losing the jaeger um piece of the which I think the film just did so perfectly. Does it really well. I mean, I can't speak for the creators of the show, but it just feels like, I don't know how you tell that in the narrative structure of many episodes. Cause it's such a, they're, they're, they're two stories running completely separate from each other. Yeah. And in a film, that's a beautiful thing to kind of keep cutting back and forth from, but in a series, you know, if they never intersect, You're I don't know how long you can keep that going. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's certainly sad to lose it because it's such a huge, important part of the book. And these guys, uh, they were, I would assume these are all guys that were part of the so-called the greatest generation. Um, uh, I say so-called because it was coined by Tom Brokaw. I'm not, I'm not, sure, sure, that's, sure. that's yeah, not, yeah. Shady. not shady. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I get you. no. Um, you know, you and I are about the same age. Do you, do you like our generation? <laughs> do I like our generation? Were we part of a good one? I don't know. It remains to be seen. Maybe I don't know. Well, we're getting old. I mean, we got <laughs> we've, me, had our, we've had our shot. I think at this point. I don't know. For me to believe that, I believe I'm my best version of myself now. Okay. Than I've ever been, and that's so I. And it has a lot to do with being a father. Yeah. Um. I think our generation has done a lot, but what I would hope is our greatest accomplishment is how we raise our children versus how generations before us raised our children. Mm. I think for me, and that's just yeah, where yeah. I'm living right now is like, I think that's what I mean by, by remains to be seen is that I don't almost understand how successful my generation, how I will have been as a part of my generation until I see my children, you know, to see that's my cool. daughter grow up and how she succeeds in the world and if she has the tools she needs to like do what her generation needs to do. That's a cool point. I like that. Yeah, I'll give you a point for that. Okay, <laughs> I'll take it. Not an easy question to answer. Um, Cause I certainly don't have an answer for it. I'm pretty depressed about our gender. I think we kind of are- the, Look, don't get me wrong, plenty to be depressed. <laughs> I think we're kind of the, the nowhere generation. I think that we kind of did nothing, it's sort of unmasked. Like, I don't know what, we, we saw a lot of crazy shit, but there are younger generations that saw that their whole lives they've been seeing crazy shit. You know, yep. we actually benefited from a period of time when we were grown up in the, in, you know, from the eighties, uh, being told we're special, we can do whatever we want to do in the world. And then what did we do? We, we yeah, what have we accomplished? Yeah. Facebook. <laughs> Thank God. Anyway, anyway. Right. So we destroyed the world. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, my we bad. Did it again. Um, so, uh, the series, uh, so John Glenn has this uh, in, in the series has this competitive relationship with Alan Shepard. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which I thought was very well done. Thanks. It felt, it felt authentic. Yeah. Do you feel that in your own life? You, I mean, Hollywood's very competitive. Do you have people, is there an Alan Shepard out there in the Hollywood? Uh, it's is? less, there certainly have been over the years, it's been very easy to place competitiveness against, well, if he's got that, then I need to get that. And I'm going to be, you know, it's less personal now. It's internalized. There is a competitiveness, but it's more just against my myself it's like i know i want certain things i want to accomplish certain things um and i i learned early on to stop putting it onto other people's careers or what other people have accomplished just because it always felt so crappy and i didn't want to be the kind of you know i want to celebrate you know when you're young and you see your friends getting jobs you, your instinct is like oh cool you got a job but what about me and i hated that being the secondary feeling mm -hmm. i was like i just want to be able to celebrate people and like yeah. not have it immediately reflect on what i haven't accomplished or what i'm doing so i certainly have uh a lot of competitive edge but it's it's mostly just about you know for myself i want to do more okay we did that what are we going to do now um there's that nature to want to like keep pushing higher and faster and further but um i don't want to like demonize or, or beat out anyone else at this point Okay. It's great to lose that. It feels good to lose that. Sure. Um, uh, what are auditions like? So I think you were the first person cast in this series, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you, was it offered to you or did no, you have to audition? No, 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 no. And I didn't want it to be, I, 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 you know, I came out of suits and I took quite a bit of time off just cause that was a pretty, um, what a wonderful experience. Wonderful experience, long experience, exhausting yeah. experience. And I've worked for so many years that I was like, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to be in a rush to jump back into something. Besides in this business, typically the thing you jump right back into is something that's exactly the same. So the only way to to hopefully do something different is to give yourself, I think, a little bit of room um, away from it, time and distance. So uh, I really wanted to be auditioning for things. I, cause I didn't want to be slotted into the like, Oh, we know he can do that because I certainly would have been related to what I had done on suits. Um, and then I had been such a huge fan of Tom Wolf's book that when I found out they were making this, I was just like, well, I don't, I, I certainly didn't think I could be John Glenn. I didn't think about John Glenn. I was just like, I don't know. Let me do anything. I was like, what roles yeah. are there? I hadn't read this. And then when I read the script, even then I wasn't like, oh, it's John Glenn. I was like, I don't even know who it is, but did they want to see me for anything? Cause I'd love to go in for it. And they came back saying John Glenn. And I was like, I just, I had such a hard time imagining it. Um, but was eager to figure it out, you know, did a bunch more research, you know, started rereading the book again, just kind of uh, jumped into the, into the pool and then um, went in. It was my first audition basically since Suits had been over. So it had been a long wow. time. It's very nerve wracking. I'm not a huge fan of, I like, I don't, I, I like the audition. I like the audition process. If it's about working, being in a room and trying stuff out and it, the pressure is taken off to perform, but that first audition is always so uncomfortable because sure. you're like, here's the thing I figured out at home and I'm doing it for you. Mm -hmm. And it either lands or it doesn't. And you get well, now you got quick. the added pressure of, you know, I, I was the guy. So, you know, yeah, I, and that yeah. can be taken away from you so easily with like, yeah, he just wasn't his usual. 
Right. Exactly. Cause I, and I learned over years of suits that I don't even know what the usual thing. Anytime I thought I was like, Oh, I figured out who I am and what people like. And then I tried to do more of that. I was like, no, that's not it. Like I'm the worst barometer of it. So <laughs> I'm just going into the room being like, just do your best job and whatever happened is going to happen. And what ended up happening was just like a remarkably great conversation with the producers. Um, you know, suddenly it stopped being about the performance. Like they were like, clearly you're, you can act, that's not what we're talking about. Let's talk about. Isn't that, isn't let's that, talk about they, what you're. They doing. Still have to consider that. Isn't, isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is one of the other benefits I, uh, of of this time I, of this uh, pandemic is the making of tapes, which has become like the go to now. Obviously, nobody's you going per, into you, casting offices. Are you saying you you prefer that? I way prefer it because really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point you need to get in the room with the people. But yeah, for yeah. That initial like, here's what here's I'm my idea. Doing here's my idea. Let me be at home. Let me. This is what I this office is what I use it for. I just built a place so I can have like a comfortable spot to come work on stuff. Have a friend there. Try it a couple of different ways. Ah, see, see what feels good. Like I think that's it. Yeah. Send it in and just be like. If it doesn't work, I don't, I'm not going to take it as personally as I did when I'm standing in a room in front of a bunch of people and a guy's on his cell phone and they're not paying attention. Like such mm -hmm. a minefield. This way, you send in a tape, and then if they react and they're like, "Oh, there's something there," then we can begin a conversation. Great. Do you want me to come in? Do you want me to do a Zoom call? Do you want me to make another tape? How do we want to do this? Um, do you think? Do you think this? That I've heard a little murmurs like we're not we're never going back into those rooms. Never. I haven't heard those murmurs, but I said that to my friend the other day. I said, I can't possibly understand why we would, you know, I would understand that it might be like a default for, um, there might be a session reserved for people who are very new to the business, you know, like let's, that, that, that that's something that should exist as long, as long as we're not cutting out opportunities for younger people and people just entering the business. But for most of us who are learning how to use cameras and learning how to use audio visual equipment, um, I'm all for people being in their most comfortable state because I think that's when we do our best work. And if that means you're at home and you're getting to make a tape with people you get along with and you can be creative, then that's the best version of yourself. Now, at some point, you're going to have to cross the threshold into what is nervous. When you get on set, it's not the perfect environment where everything is safe for you. I'm not saying that we don't have to get used to that environment, but it's certainly easier to feel safe on a set environment if you've already, like, gotten the go ahead that how that what your approach is is working and you know you work up to that moment then you're at a table read then you're rehearsing with people and then you get to set and I think that first stepping in front of a camera and saying here's what I'm offering to you why go do it in, a, in front of a bunch of strangers or sitting in a waiting room where you're hearing the person before you do it like the worst. there's no the worst. benefits there. i did a i did a network test once and it was down to me and two other dudes and and i i went last and the guy who went right before me in the room it was for a comedy screamed the yeah. whole and the they were he was screaming the entire thing and the room was erupting in laughter and oh then, my god and then i had to go he scre screamed it like not a human being and so i was like oh they're laughing the whole time oh just dying laughing did he get it no none of us got the show didn't even go <laughs> oh god yeah i don't miss it i don't miss any of it at all I mean, it's just the most dehumanizing process in a lot of ways. And I don't, that's not even, I don't blame casting directors or whatever. They're all, we're all doing our jobs, but 
if there's any way, like this is a medium that's on camera. So even those tests, it should be a director and an actor and a small crew shooting them and then show that tape to, they should be screen tests and then show them to the people in the suits. I don't understand why we have to go sit in a room with, the, with those folks to like do our little theater piece essentially in front of them in a room. It's not gonna play anyway. Like just let us go and like be creative and do what we're gonna do on set and like play around and find the perfect version of this and then send the tape to the network and let them decide. And are your are your wife are you both each other's uh, person for this? Like, are you taping each other? And uh, we certainly have been. There are certain. It's tough when got, you have the kids there as well. You know, you got to wait yeah, for nap time or. Yeah. Well, we've. It's also over the years we've learned like what material she'll. I can tell she'll have some auditions where I'm not the person to work with. Like for whatever you know, we're ah. in a relationship, and she's just like, I don't. I I will not feel. You know, you're getting like any, any, you're getting, anybody, you're but notes. You. <laughs> yeah, you're going to give me notes on this that I don't want to do it. And then <laughs> other things she'll be like, I really want your help with this. And it's the yeah. same with me. Like, it just depends. And we're lucky enough that we have a big community of, of really talented people who are willing to, to do this stuff. So there's usually a good pool to draw from when we have a good audition. So you and I, we have something in common that I didn't, I didn't know about this until I heard you say this uh, in, a, in an interview, but you spent part of your, I know you're Canadian, but you spent part of your life growing up in the UK. Yeah. Did you, did you grow up in the UK too? I did. Yeah. I was born there. And then I went back a couple of times. One of them was my eighth grade through the end of high school. What school did you go to? I went to the American school. So did I. You did, you went to ASL? ASL. No sheds. Were we, could we have been at, no. What, so what years were you at ASL? But eight to? I was there from, uh, it would have been 95 to 2000. So we wouldn't have, cause I would have been home. Oh, this is weird. I probably left in like, I left London. We're gonna have to do math now to cut this part out. But I left uh, London when I was, I want to say 11 or 12. So how, what year is that? If I'm born in 19, 11 or 12, would have been... that's 1993 or four. So oh I would gosh. have left right before you went. We just missed each other. Now, that's wait a minute. Crazy. Cause I've got friends who went all the, all the way K through 12 there. Would you know some of these people? I have a yearbook from ASL. Do you remember Michael Benz? Nope. He, his whole family, multiple members of his family went the whole program. I got to have Mike on here too. Um, yeah. Greg Copeland? No, I'm sure I won't remember names to be honest. Okay. Well, did you, uh, are you, I'm, I'm trying to think about whether or not we're in the same, we would have been in the same year. So did you, what, what year did you graduate high school? I graduated high school in 2000, but I had five years of high school because in Canada we do five years instead of four. That's interesting. So, so that might put you into, you might be a year older than me, maybe. Like, were you born in 82 oh. or 81? Well, I was born in 81. Oh, okay. I'm born in 81. So you mean a different year at ASL? You still, you still might have been ahead of me by a year. Yeah. Maybe. How many years did you go to the school? The, basically the whole time we were there. So three or four years. So tell me, like, what was that uh, culture shock like for you? Because it was one for me. I mean. Huge. It was, you know, I in therapy I've sort of parsed this out quite a bit but I mean it was it was a difficult transition uh, not just culturally but 
you know, my, we left my older sister in, in Toronto to finish school there. So it was just very, like, it, it just took a very sort of normal suburban family situation. And then we went to Europe and my dad was working all the time. They were trying to find a place to live. It was just like crazy. And it felt like all of a sudden, you know, there was no real like parenting going on. I know there was, mm. there was nothing like terrible. It just well, you're was in very lonely. Room. I just remember at like eight years old feeling incredibly vulnerable and lonely. Mm. And then I like, they tried putting me into a couple of different schools when I got there and it, there were no really good matches. And then we found ASL and it was like, I felt at least like I could get my footing, but. Were you taking the subway to school? Were you taking a cab? Subway. Yeah, too. Yeah. 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 Did you, and were you checking out the, did you get a chance to see some, cause what I would do a lot would just go, I, when I'd finish school, I'd go just see a show. Like, right. Kind of two options for me. It was either there were people at a pub. Yeah. You'd go see them yeah. or, or what I would do often would be go to the theater because you could get, cause they have subsidized theater. You get student tickets at the national yeah. theater and you, which would be about $15 to see. see. I wish I would, we, we, I certainly experienced some theater there, but it was, you know, we're young. I was young and so it was my mother uh, who would take me to shows, thank God, but it wasn't like, I wasn't getting a deep immersion into like the national theater stuff. It was like, what was in the West End? It was like, God, I don't remember what we saw. You know, maybe some Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff or like it was- well, You uh, probably saw like Blood Brothers was like a bit- I saw Blood Brothers in Toronto, in Toronto ah, but, okay. but yes, that sort of thing. It was that kind of like, that kind of experience. Do you remember um, the TV? Because I remember there were, you know, so there was kind of these four channels. BBC four channels, yeah. To ITV and then Channel 4. I They would put movies on, like ITV, in the middle of the day, rated our movies. And this is how I saw a lot of stuff. Like, I watched Reservoir Dogs on television, unedited, no fucking commercials, at like two in the afternoon on a fucking Saturday. Or, or during the week. All did, Do you remember this? I don't remember that, but probably... You know, because again, I was too young, but that's wild. Yeah, it, they would put that <laughs> stuff on television in the middle of the day. That's how I saw a lot of stuff that I was not supposed to see. Um, God bless them. So uh, your dad is a foreign correspondent. Is he retired? Yeah, he's retired. Uh, he still, you know, writes. He, he talks about writing. He wrote uh, he wrote a book many years ago, and he talks about writing another book. But uh, yes, he was he that's why we moved to england he yeah uh, he became a foreign correspondent for the canadian broadcasting corporation and then he got another job at uh the christian science monitor and he became a free i think he became a freelance journalist maybe while we were there or just after we moved back from england but yeah he, he has been a journalist his whole life um so that's a similar thing i guess to like george clooney's dad was like a journalist and yeah. He wasn't like a journalist. He, he was a journalist. He was yeah. a journalist. Um, uh, and what's your dad's name? Claude. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. You didn't know that? Oh, I thought I that did, was a but, leading question. But it is, no, it is a leading question. Oh, okay. The way you pronounced his name that I'm... Claude. Yeah. I, no, I, I, I refuse. He's not Claude. He's not Claude. <laughs> but what does that mean? It's spelled the same way. Is it? It's Claude? Claude? Claude. Like, like Claude. You, uh, his actual name is Klaus. He was born in Germany. Uh, ah. And I think on his passport is Klaus. I don't, I think when he moved to Canada, they were living in Quebec. So a French, Can you know, French Canadian. So I think the transition from Klaus to Claude, it's a French reading of it. And that just stuck. 
So I think just being in Canada, you, you, you tilt towards the French of anything. So, uh, Claude is just always how it was. Yeah. Claude. All right. I certainly got it. I mean, people get, give me also, they give me Clade, Clyde. I get them. But you prefer Claude. It is Jean-Claude. The, the way it's pronounced. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, so I heard you say, uh, in an interview that you don't, you don't watch your own work. Is that true? Yeah. You know, yeah. so I want to ask you about this because, you know, sure. I remember Sam, Samuel L. Jackson was asked this question once and he was like, why wouldn't I watch myself? He's like, it's a watch me business. I, 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 I admire that. And I, I, I hope to get to that position. If I were as good as Samuel L. Jackson, I'd be watching myself too. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, it's something that I'm working on and through, and I'd love to be able to be, uh, I get, I, I don't feel that I am actually seeing what's really going on when I watch myself. So I get lost in things that everybody else around me would be like, you're crazy. Like that like, moment like really worked. It's a lot of like vanity stuff. Like, I'm just like, oh, I can't, that doesn't look right. Or, you know, I feel like, like I your just, face isn't doing what you want it to do. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's just completely unhealthy. Like I don't have a realistic um barometer that's that being said i've seen things before that i like that work and take suits for example right like there was so much of it that at some point it was like okay i know what it is i can watch it mm. uh, you know if there's a scene where i think they lit me poorly or whatever i can ignore that or when i was directing for example i directed four episodes of suits yeah it was totally fine because my brain was in a different place i was just like watching it I wasn't completely invested on like my performance is the most important thing. I was like, as long as I did the things I need to do to make this scene work, that's all that matters. So my, my, I had a more macro approach to it. Um, but in other things, I can just get lost in the weeds. I can just mm -hmm. like, not, I do not have an accurate um, sense of what's really going on on the screen and it can like bum me out. And then I can get really like, you know, I, you know, like anybody, I can be very self-effacing and, and, you know, get down on myself. And mm. I've found that in certain things, I just know when I'm shooting it and the right stuff was one of them. I was, I was like, this isn't going to be for me to watch. Because if I see huh. it, it will make me try and fix it. It'll make, I'll go into work and try and fix things that oh, don't might, need to be fixed. You might overcorrect sort of. Right, I'll totally overcorrect and blow the whole thing and if other people i just learned to find the people who i really trust and i go is this working mm -hmm. and i learned to have a conversation with them and in real time adjust but i don't want to start making corrections based on like my experience of watching it because i i think that that's like a i think that's a skill set that you learn over a long period of time so it's not surprising to me to hear that like samuel L. jackson talks about that i worked with dustin hoffman once and he was amazing at that he would go to the monitor and he would watch what was just shot and it was like watching a surgeon he was like no hmm. that yes no okay let's go again like I, well, I i would love to get to that point well athletes do it a lot you know they watch their performance a lot sure. and i think there's something similar going on but it is very i mean what we are doing is uh it's sophisticated in a way it's not i mean it may not be certainly nearly as physically strenuous as other other kinds of performances but Certainly but I love that it's, it gets at the fact that it's all about these little adjustments. Oh, that works. That doesn't. This is a little thing. For me, even though I've been, I think, blessed to work a ton, uh, that level of immersion I'm still not in. You know, like every job still feels really important to the trajectory of my career. And maybe that's part of it. Like 
I'm putting too much importance on everything that I watch and my brain starts wanting to fix so many things when really maybe it's just two things that need to be fixed. And a Dustin Hoffman or a Samuel L. Jackson have the capacity to be like, you know, I work all the time, I'm constantly working on things, the pressure is off and they can just see, I wanna, you know, maybe I wanna fix that and I wanna get that right. And, you know, maybe stand up straighter in that shot. Uh, for me, it becomes a wash of like, oh my God, none of this is working. We got to scrap it. And that's mm. not healthy or productive. So uh, mm. until I learn, I guess, how to modulate like that, then I just have learned it's probably best for me to stay away from it. Well, I thought you were great on it, man. I really did. I thought the character you created for John Glenn was, um, I liked his neuroses. I liked his uh, self-doubt, and his, but also his determination. I liked his... Uh, uh, watching his sort of ambition and all of that. Uh, I thought you did, a, I just thought you, 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 you allowed us in to sort of see what was going on with him in a really cool way. It was good. Thanks, I, I, liked I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Patrick, um, thank you for coming on here and chatting with me. Uh, you're very kind to do it. And Thanks, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure. congrats on your family and your success. Um, and I wish you safety and good health, man. Thanks, man. You too. Much love to you and the family. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Patrick Adams. A big thank you again to Patrick for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Kevin Avery, Ira Madison III, Corbin Reed, Brendan McDonald, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, and Shelley Bala coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is in our Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Michael Benz. We talk about high school plays, the difference between American and UK acting training, auditioning for RADA, mental health, and dealing with panic attacks on stage, going to college with John Mulaney, and working with luminaries such as Joaquin Phoenix, Tom Hanks, Laura Linney, Cynthia Nixon, Paul Giamatti, Maggie Smith, Rafe Fiennes, and David Suchet. I dare you to start this interview and not finish it. Here is the supremely talented, kind, and charming star of stage and screen, my good friend, Michael Kadire Benz. So happy birthday. I know that it was your birthday this week. Do you mind me asking? uh, I mean, we're the same age, right? Did you hit hit it yet? No, not yet. I haven't hit it yet. Have you hit it yet? No. Yeah. No. This no, it'll be I mean, it'll be December for me. Yeah, and it'll be a year from now for me. I mean the biggie. The biggie. How's, and yet it doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Fifty. <laughs> no. <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about fifty, right? <laughs> oh, I was actually talking about thirty. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, so so I, I so you just turned thirty nine then. Mm-hmm. So how so I, I got to tell you I'm about I'm about halfway through 39. It, it, it it's hard. I'm finding that it's hard. 39 is hard. Why? 
Well, I hear for, this is what I've heard from friends of mine who are 40 and older. They've all said that 40 is a lot easier than 39 because when you're 40, you're 40, you know, and the one mm. one buddy of mine. Um, I wonder if you know this guy. Uh, I'll ask you in a second. But he, he said he said he has now he has another 10 years to like make something of himself once once he was 40. He had another 10 years now or nine years <laughs> to, to figure his shit out. That is a really fascinating way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about that. Right. So you start 40 and you're like, okay, well, I've got, I've got a whole new decade ahead of me as opposed to ending your 30s going like looking back on it and going, what, what, have, I, what have I done? What have I done? And, yeah. oh, oh, I only got, oh, I, I've only got so much until my 40th. No, I'm trying not to place that kind of pressure on myself, but maybe that will happen inevitably. Well, you're in a you're in a great spot right now. You are you, you know you're starring in the latest season of For All Mankind. I know it's an it's like an alternate history mm-hmm. of the space race between the United States and the USSR. I think mm-hmm. right. Yep. Do they and it does it jump back and forth in time as well? Yeah. So it's it's a Ronald D. Moore show, and it's it's essentially uh, an alternate history show where. What if the Soviets had actually beat us to the moon, which right. was an actual possibility? Yuri Gagarin, in, right? Yeah, it, right. Well, well, actually, what, what happened was in July of 1969, the U.S. Neil Armstrong Apollo 11 landed on the moon. But in the months leading up to it, the 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 Russian um, the the Soviet Apollo their their version of the Apollo missions were actually very close to getting a man on the moon. Right. Um, and there, what, there is some evidence to suggest that what they really wanted to do was to do almost like a surprise landing on the moon. See, all the Apollo missions, all the NASA missions were planned. Apollo 11 was planned, you know? I mean, when they, when they launched Apollo 11, it was with the intention of getting Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And I think the Soviets wanted to really surprise the world. And they wanted to time it in a way so that it was, you know, on prime time in the U.S. So that it was, holy shit, everybody, turn on your TV. There's going to be live pictures of a Soviet cosmonaut walking on the surface of the moon. They beat us. They beat us. And the, the, the premise of the entire series is... What would have been the geopolitical, cultural ramifications of something like that? How would Richard Nixon at the time have reacted? How Mm. would NASA have reacted? Would we have um, given up on our moon ambitions or would we have doubled it? And would the space race ever have ended? And if the space race had never ended, where would we be right now? How much further along would we be? would we be much more have much more of a presence on the moon? Would we already be at Mars by now? Um, it just would have accelerated history, and it would have accelerated the space race. And um, and that's that's essentially what the what the the, the story is about. So the first season is based in and around 1969 in the Apollo years, and mm-hmm. um, and then uh, the second season jumps forward to 1983, 1984. So now we're in Reagan and the space shuttle era, and that's right. where my character enters. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a uh, an astronaut eager to get into space. Right, haven't got a mission yet. Yeah, the boss doesn't like him. Boss doesn't like me. 
because of my red hair, which is funny because I have blonde hair. Quite blonde hair. Yeah. Are you a strawberry blonde? <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, I always hated that. I hated it when people would say, oh, you're a strawberry. Or in, in London, it was like, strawberry blonde. Yeah. Piss no, off. just, yeah, I just, I just got yellow hair. Yeah. Uh, gorgeous yellow hair. Uh... Thank you so much. <laughs> I should say for the audience at this point, we've, we've known each other for, I did the math on those, 26 years. Jesus. 26. I think we look pretty good. I think we look great <laughs> for 30-year-olds, for 29-year-olds on those 30-year-olds. I think that's great. God, we met when we were only three or four. Um, is that right? So what, when did you, when did your family move to London? So we, we, we moved, uh, it was, I think it was 1995. And 95, we, yeah. So I came in for, I had been in California for three years for junior high. That's right. Before that, before that, I was in Massachusetts, um, and the, but then I was also I was born in the UK. I remember that, yeah. And um, but then I, when I came back, it was eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay, I wasn't sure if you had started high school or not. Wow, Claude, eighth grade. Yeah, that's how long we've known each other. Well, and our friend uh, Elna Baker was there too, who's been yeah. on this podcast now. I know Elna Baker's been on this podcast. Yeah. Did you did you listen to that episode? And I had, and yes, I have. It is fantastic. She is, she is the she is the consummate storyteller. I mean, she actually, yeah. really, truly is. She she really does have storytelling down to an art form. Yeah, she's she's a she's a real pro at it, and uh, yeah. it was fascinating watching her because then she and I went to college together. Uh, it was fascinating watching her develop her voice, and and she mm-hmm. you know, and I told her this in the interview. She Elna is always like a step ahead of like where things were headed in terms of uh, a period of time in which performers were going back to those, uh, those kind of um, that kind of one person format uh, in various uh, arenas, whether it was on stage or uh, at a comedy club. And she was sort of finding her, she, I think she started on comedy stages and then she ended up at the moth and then, uh, and then went from there. But um, uh, yeah, her interview, she, she's, she's, she is awesomely not afraid to talk about things that, you know, she thinks about uh, her life and how she feels like anything. people perceive her. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. That interview. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, goes, it goes to some great places. Ella Baker has told me stories that even I, I am not easy to shock. <laughs> you, 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 you can tell me pretty much anything. And Elna yeah. has told me stories where I'm like, are you sure you want to be sharing this with me? <laughs> yeah. The sto- stories are you like, stop, stop, stop. Elna. <laughs> Elna now. <laughs> I'm feeling but, unsafe. But she always makes, she always sticks the landing. That's the most. And then you've gone on this oh. amazing wild ride. Um, one of my favorite people. Um, mm. as, as are you. And, you oh, know. Well, thank you. Likewise. So, so we went to, for, for folks listening, we went to the American School in London, um, which boasts illustrious graduates such as uh, Kathleen Turner. That's right, yes. And Steve-O from Jackass went to, went to our <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking a sip of water when you said that. <laughs> that was I'm so glad. I'm so sad. glad. 
I'm so glad that Kathleen Turner and Steve O are in the same are in the same category. Do you know I met I met Kathleen Turner once at a movie premiere. Oh, you did? And, oh, cool. Yeah, and I had a great conversation with her. I couldn't I couldn't believe that I was sitting next to her. And um, yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, I mentioned ASL. I mentioned that she went to school there, and she was very excited. And she really does truly have an incredibly deep voice. Yeah, yeah. She uh, an iconic voice. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know how, I feel like what's interesting is I think like Steve-O would have fit in very well with the group of folks that we were hanging out with. Don't you think? Uh, I mean, I would have been frightened of him. Yeah, maybe. But I think he would have been, I think he would have been on the rugby team and he, maybe he was on the rugby team. Oh yeah, sure. Absolutely. And just drinking a bunch of Fosters and hanging out in Hampstead. I feel like I could see it. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that. But then, like, I don't know, Steve-O would then be the guy that, I don't know, tries to burn down one of the houses in Hampstead or something like that. I don't think any of us ever had the balls to do that. We were all too, I feel like, especially you, especially us two, Claude, I think that we were sort of goody two-shoes on some level, don't you think? I was, yeah. We followed the rules. We followed the rules. Yeah, we, I, yes, I, that's right. I mean, no, I can't think of too much stuff that went on in our school that was like pranks or things like that. I mean, pretty tame stuff. I think um, you and I, I, I mean, I think that also your parents, if I recall correctly, like I think both of our parents were kind of strict compared to some of the other parents. They, they were strict. My, my mom yeah. was particularly strict. I used to get, um, people used to call the house and I guess she would, I didn't know that this was happening. She would say that I couldn't, that I was busy with homework, which is fine. I, I'm not upset about that. I'm glad she did. Hmm. I, I needed to, I, high school was a lot harder for me than college was. Oh, interesting. interesting. For gra- gra- yeah. grades wise. Like, I mean, for I managed, work-wise, yeah. I managed to get out of there with a B plus average, but like I had to work, I had to work very hard to do, to do well in my, in my classes. Um, I was, I feel, I feel like I was pretty smart until Latin and algebra. And those two subjects were the beginning of me being like, "Uh Oh, I'm not that smart. I think I forgot that we had Latin at school. I had that just previous to arriving in London. It was, uh, at school in California, we had to do Latin. Oh my God. And you, but you didn't do it at ASL. No, not at ASL. But I do. Uh, okay. But I, I, I did enjoy taking French classes. I don't think I was very good. Uh, I enjoy. I still remember a surprising amount of French. I can't speak it, but I can understand some of it. Um, yeah. But I mean, I was, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that your mom. I'm not surprised that your parents weren't strict. I mean, if I, I mean, I'm not surprised that your parents were strict. My I, dad was not. My it was m- much more my mom. Was that the same? I mean, for looking you? back on it. I think about like our social lives. We were 16 years old, going to the pub, staying out until 2:30 in the morning. I, mean, I got away with we, that. I mean, we got away with so much stuff. Crazy but, like, stuff. Yeah. I mean, if I don't have any kids, but God, if I if I were if I had a 16 year old living in London, I would not be cool with the idea of that 16 year old going off to the pub every single day after That's school right. before That's going right. home to do homework. I mean, I would be like, no, kid. You can yeah. do that when you're an adult. So this is the thing. And I think for folks listening, like this might bring up a few questions. So, yeah. So we were when we were in high school, I started getting served at the pub when I was probably 14. Yeah. Um, they didn't really ask for an ID, as I recall. You were very tall. You were very tall. Did you have to ever have a fake ID? Uh, I only needed a fake ID when I went off to college. 
Yeah, that's in the, right. In, in the, the U.S. In the U.S. In the U.S. And I was, I hated it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. It felt puritanical at that point. And and highly illegal. <laughs> and highly illegal. That's right. I got one. Yeah. I got a fake ID in New York, and it was. I chose the name. Um, I might have gone with Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. My, yeah, because I <laughs> one of my doppelgangers, and I just thought, yeah. I'm go with this. Um, I think I think I had a Connecticut one. It, it was. Yeah. I think. I think. I think it was the cheapest one. I, th- I seem to have this memory of my brother and I. I don't know if I should be saying this, but I do. Uh, my brother Patrick and I, who was at the same yeah. college as I was at Georgetown, and oh yeah, and, right. and yeah, and he, um, he. Uh, oh, Patrick liked to party. Oh yeah, and I think I think the fake IDs were two hundred bucks each, and we had to, and we sent it to some guy in New York. Maybe we used the same guy, and um, <laughs> and I remember he took four hundred dollars in cash and stuck Ooh. it in an envelope and sent it up from DC to New York. And a few weeks later, we got these pieces of shit IDs, but hey, they worked. Did they? Yeah, yeah. they worked. They would work at most places. Yeah. Um, it was before. I mean, for kids now, it's over because now they have these barcodes. There's oh, no way that folks can do that anymore. But yeah, no. we would. I would come home from, and Guinness was my preferred drink of choice. And I would, yeah. I mean, I would come home buzzed. Uh, it, definitely on Fridays, mm-hmm. you know, definitely that last day of the week. Um, but I definitely would go to the pub because then we would just hop on the the, the tube or the bus to get home. So, yeah, there was not there was not a lot of supervision there. And I don't know how I got away with it. I don't know how my mom didn't immediately smell that on my breath or something. But, yes, amazingly, she was strict about certain things. But I remember I said to my I mom when I was. Yeah, I, w- I was 16, I think. And I was and, you know, a bunch of us were going off to the pub on a Friday or whatever. And I, and I think I said. I don't know. She 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 was giving me a tough time about going to the pub because I was 16 years old. You know, I mean, it makes sense. And I um and I think I said something to her rather dramatic, like. But I think I think I said something like, "Look, do you want me to stay home and do nothing and have no friends, or do you want me to have a social life?" That's a 16 year old ultimatum right there. Yeah. And she essentially said, I mean, she essentially said, look, if this is if this is the only way you're going to have a social life, I suppose I have to allow you. Here's five pounds. That's, you know, enough for two. That would have bought two pints. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll come pick you up or something like that or make sure that someone else's parents drive you home. Did she? Was 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 Peggy coming by and picking you up? No, she wasn't in the end. Uh, But um, that's not a scene you want. You don't want mom pulling up outside the pub, probably. Oh, but you don't know my family. I mean, I mean, uh, when when we would go home for Christmas, all of my brothers were all like in our thirties, and my mother would still drive us to the pub and pick us up. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. God bless it. That is so oh, adorable. No. Oh no, my mom, my mom loved it. Um, but, do yeah. you remember, can you believe that they outlawed the 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 smoking? And I still can't believe they they got rid of smoking in pubs. I know this has yeah. been years now, but. That smell of smoke in those in the crushed velvet of the banquets, like that would you could never get that out. You, I mean, you would have to burn those places to the ground to get it. No, to, and there are still certain places in London, certain pubs in London where you can go in and smell it, and 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 it's still there. 
Yeah, God bless that because, smell. Because they haven't sold the upholstery or anything like that. You can still smell and that And our disgusting... friends would be, they'd be in there, they'd be smoking, they'd be playing a sort of a push-button gambling machine, like video mm-hmm. game. And, I mean, Blinky, just, yeah. And then there was a little area, and what was our, what was the, fr- the drum and monkey was the was the first one, and then the, then it ended up being the star. The star, the star tavern, yeah. The star yeah. was all right. The drum and monkey was fantastic. Oh, and the drum and monkey was so great. A very special place. And I, that's the place that, like, Noel Gallagher or Liam Gallagher used to go every once in a while, I think. I never saw him, but I would hear stories. I, I think it was both the star and the drum and monkey. The star tavern was across the street from a very big recording studio. Was um, it? Oh, yeah. Know that. And that's where I think probably... Uh, uh, well, well, the other thing is, is, is that... Um, uh, who's Gwyneth Paltrow's husband? Uh, Chris Martin. Chris Martin. Um, yeah, he used to go to the star all the time because he lived like five doors down from it. He's he's your doppelganger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Should I take that as a compliment? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, you should do a yeah. biopic of... Yeah, absolutely. He's a, I, think I should so. do a, bio, a biopic. Yeah, great. We'll get, we'll get right on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our school it cycled through a lot of people. You did all all of the years K through twelve, which I think entitled you to being. No, you didn't. I thought I did. I started be on in the... the third grade. Oh, I, I thought you were going to be the on the plaque. Grade. No, there was, no. There was, a, there was a special plaque for people who went the whole time. Okay, so you started in third grade. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you describe the culture of the school at the time in the nineties? Was it fun? Did you have fun in high school? Uh, <clears throat> that is a really, really, really good question. I, uh, I, I, I think I did. I think that my memories of it were that my, so, so I was on, I was on a TV show. I was on a children's TV show for for years and years in the UK. So, and that was for six years. Yeah. So just, just for, just for folks listening. So, yeah. So he, so you had been on a, so when I had arrived, I had been doing just a little bit of, uh, some professional theater acting and stuff. You you had already done this BBC miniseries as a kid called Little mm-hmm. Lord Fauntleroy, which was uh, a, a Julian Fellow series. He, That's right, the same, yeah. same guy who does Downton Abbey and, and uh, Gosford Park and all of these uh, other great uh, programs and films. And so Little Lord Fauntleroy is about a, a boy living in the States with an American mother in the 19th century. Who finds out, and the boy finds out he's the heir to an earldom and a vast estate in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did. How old were you when you had done that project? I was eleven years old. I oh my god! 12. You look, you look like you're eight. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've always, <laughs> I've always looked younger than I am. So, um, what was I did want to ask you about that? So, what was the audition? It's an iconic story it's a thing that people say around england little lord fauntleroy mm-hmm. it's an expression i used to think that that only referred to the one that you did but there have been a few iterations of this story. so it's based it's based on a francis hodges burnett book called little lord fauntleroy and um and yeah it, they, they have done several iterations of it um the bbc wanted to do a new one back in 1990 god what was that 1993 or 4 um, and see, I was on another TV show at the time called yeah. Mike and Angelo, which was a, which was right. a sort of, uh, sort of after school children's kids sitcom, really. I mean, it was sort of aimed towards young adults, kids, you know, um, and you did, and, I think uh, you did, you had done 60 episodes of that. 
correct? Yeah, or, or I think by the time by the time Fauntleroy for the BBC came along, I had done you know maybe two or three seasons of, of Mike and Angelo. Oh, so it was happening concurrently. I didn't know that. I thought yeah, I thought yeah. my guess was that Mike and Angelo followed Little Lord Fauntleroy, but you were doing no. That, that happened all in the same the the, the at the same time. And in Got fact, it. if I recall, it was when I had uh, Ruth human mrs human as my as my homeschool teacher and i remember because it was the sixth grade and i essentially did not go to school for sixth grade oh right and i remember miss i remember ruth human sitting my parents down and being like i don't know how i can pass your child onto the seventh grade when he literally has not been here I mean, he's been here for a total of like four weeks. We gave wow. like, I mean, it was a, it was a very busy year for me. Um, so that's that's essentially. I mean, you know, when you're a kid actor, you're you're especially in the UK, especially if you're a kid actor in the UK and you are playing Americans. Um, you know, you're, you're, it's a very small pool. Yeah, it's a small um, pool. How did they how, how did they find you? Because I, you know, I want did they find you through the American school? Were you uh, in an the, acting the, program at that time? No, no, no. I I I uh <clears throat> I auditioned for uh the the sitcom, the sort of kids sitcom through ASL. I did not have an agent or anything like right. that. Right. Um they they just came to ASL, they came to the school. I mean, it must have been looking back on it, it must have just been the casting directors must have just been, hey, why don't we just audition kids at some local American school where we can find a bunch of kids that can at the very least put on good American accents. Did you have and any interest? Did you have any interest at that point in being an actor? I, yeah, I think I did. But essentially, what I did was I, I saw Home Alone, and I saw Macaulay Culkin. Fuck yeah, and, sure. And I and I saw just everybody coming up to me. I looked just like him. And the yeah, yeah, and yeah. Everything. That's right. And all of these people, and I was a bit of a class clown. And I, yeah, I yeah. you know, and, and and I guess I had enough people coming up to me saying, hey, yeah, yeah, you should do that. You should do that. And I think I, I went up to my mother one time and I said, you know, I can do that. if I can do that. And you then, said I can I, do that. Yeah, I said I said I can do that. You know, so and my cool. mom, you know, I'm one of six children. And yeah. I think my mom just looked at me and went, great, kid. <laughs> Next, yeah. you know, Good. glad you, you, we have something you care about. Move on to something yeah, else. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And um, and uh, essentially, what happened was, I think, I think the, the the they came, the casting director came to the school, that they they handed out these little permission slips. I think my mother signed it real quick, not even looking at it. I think I had another callback. She signed it real quick. She didn't even look at it. She just thought, I don't know, Michael's doing something, whatever. <laughs> and then eventually, the casting director I think called the house in London while my mom was making dinner for the six children. My, you know, my mom probably was just in, in, around the stove and everything on the phone going, yes. And the casting director essentially, I think, called her and said, hey, is this, this is Mrs. Benz? And my mom said, yeah. And she said, look, I think you need to understand that we're, we're about to cast Michael in a television show. Are you aware of what's, what's going on? Because we need to talk to you about this. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and that's when my mom was like, Wait, what? <laughs> what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then I think they came and I think the producers and the casting, one of the directors or whatever came to, actually, I think came to our house. 
And then essentially the same sort of thing happened with Fauntleroy. Julian Fellows came, I remember, and he sat at our kitchen table and sat down with my mom and my dad and sort of explained wow. what the show was. Yeah. And, and we'd like Michael to do it. And, and are you okay with this? And he'll be away for a long time. And, you know, it's all, it's all very wholesome and safe. And he'll have a chaperone and a tutor. And it's, it was all very, you know, innocent and nice. And my parents are into yeah. Deal with it well. You know, I remember when we were in high school, there was a moment. Um, there were t- I want to tell you about two moments. There was one that's a funny one. I remember we were backstage doing some play. And by the way, I wanted to say that you were very nice to me because I, here I came like Bonnie Prince Claude in from uh, uh, California. I'd done a little bit. I had, had done a, I did a commercial for Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> which, oh, I thought you were fantastic. Which of course I did. And then um, <laughs> I had done some musicals and things, but you never, you had not, you didn't give me any kind of like uh, prove it attitude. You were very cool. It was nice that we, we, I feel like we immediately were like, oh, somebody else who likes this thing. But I also knew mm-hmm. that you were working a lot and I thought that was just the coolest. And, um, but you were very sweet to me. I wanted to tell you that because uh, it, there was a moment, <laughs> I remember, I do remember this. I remember when we were, uh, backstage doing we were in the middle of some play and you were doing a, a bit you used to just make me laugh a lot and one of the bits was do you remember doing this you were we were in a room wait backstage and there was a floor there was like a mirror like a floor length mirror and you okay. started you started doing a bit where you would like see yourself in the mirror and you'd pretend that you were the only person in the room <laughs> And then you would go in, you'd go in for a kiss with yourself, with your reflection, and then pretend that someone had walked in the room. And it was delightful. <laughs> well, you know what? I have absolutely no memory of that. But, I, but you were I drunk. Think that's, <laughs> well, first of all, I was probably drunk. <laughs> secondly, secondly, um, uh, hey, that's not a bad bit. I like oh, it. Oh, it's such a great bit. It's, it still holds up in my mind. And then, but uh, there was another. I was, I was probably so surprised to see a floor length mirror. That's not something that we'd have in our house in London, you know, like an actual. Sure. I, was, I was probably like, wow. I remember, <laughs> we should give a shout out at this point to uh, our beloved uh, high school drama teacher, Buck Heron, who oh, Buck uh, Heron. just retired, I think, in this past year, uh, which mm-hmm. worked out nicely with the pandemic and everything. I know he did one more school season and they they went virtual with their play productions and just a wonderful mm-hmm. man i do and very funny and I, you know he i do remember one time we had we were doing another play and uh, you had this big important monologue in the play and my character was on stage as well but my character was supposed to be sleeping on stage <laughs> and i remember buck just he had all these notes for you and he was just giving <laughs> note after note and you were very you would take it very seriously <laughs> just right at the end he just said uh Claude, that was perfect. <laughs> that was sleeping. Oh, that's great. No, no notes. Oh, no notes, Claude. That was perfect. No, you were perfect, Claude. Um, <laughs> I do remember. Now, this one was another one that was kind of interesting, and we were talking a little bit about this uh, earlier, about this idea of uh, stress. We were talking about the, the Friends reunion and those auditions. And, you know, I do remember there was one moment when we were doing something, maybe something different, I don't know. But you, you were nervous, and I remember saying to you, you're, you're famous. 
you, what are you, what are you nervous about? You know? And, um, uh, you just talked a little bit about the pressure of being good when you're already sort of doing a lot of, or if you had done some, or you just felt a lot of pressure to be good in whatever you were, um, doing at the time. And, um, I guess, you know, I guess I wonder, you know, I was just watching this, uh, special with Bo Burnham, the comedian oh. and the director, uh, called Inside. And he talked uh, about... I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard about it. Yeah. It's very good. It's very good. And he talks in, in it about... he. I guess he quit doing stand-up for five years because he was getting panic attacks while he was on stage. Mm-hmm. And there have been actually there's have been other stories about very famous actors like Ian Holm and Stephen Fry have both suffered from very bad periods of stage fright. Does this happen to you? Do you ever get this feeling, or do you still deal with those those feelings of nervousness? And uh, does it happen while you're performing, or does it happen uh, before you do the thing? Well, it's amazing that you're asking me this, and I I I I I. I, 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 I the, the, in answer, to answer your question, yes. Um, and in fact, I haven't actually really talked about this a whole lot, but I'm very happy to. I was doing a production of, of uh, The Importance of Being Earnest in London. With David in, Suchet. It, with David Suchet in 2015. Yeah. And it was a very long run. Mm. It, it it went on for nine months. It was, it was a very, very long run. Now, we, did, we started off with a sort of... Um, uh, four or five week number one tour. Number one tour just means you, you sort of go to these the big houses around the UK, and it's essentially you're just sort of getting get, getting run up for when you go into the West End. Yeah. Um, and um, and we got to the West End. We opened it. You know, generally good reviews. And um, you know, I, it was it was a weird time for me. It was this wonderful job, wonderful cast. Um, London was just you know, buzzing with energy and I was making decent money and, and everything like that. And I don't know, it, it, yes, the anxiety did kick in quite hard. And I think it might've been a series of, of, of things that I, I lost my, my younger sister uh, yeah. a few years earlier in, in an accident. And yeah. I just had not, I think, fully, I don't know, um, processed a lot of it. Yeah. And um, and I found myself on stage with David Suchet. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you know the importance of being earnest very well, but there is a moment when Jack Worthing, who, who, who is right. the, the boy who's trying to marry uh, Gwendolyn, is on stage with uh, Lady Bracknell. And uh, it's just the two of them. And Lady Bracknell is inquiring after him, gets a notebook out and starts asking all the questions. And one of the questions is, you know, uh, you know, where were you born? How, how many, you know, wh- where do you live? How many bedrooms do you have? Da, 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 are you good enough for my daughter? And, and, um, and uh, it's, the fa- it's the famous scene when, when Lady Bracknell says, he says, well, actually, Lady Bracknell, I was, I, I don't have parents and I was, I don't know where I was born. And, and oh, yeah. he says, actually, I was, I was found. And she goes, found? And, uh, and right. he says, yes. And she goes, where were you found? And he says, uh, in a handbag. And she goes, in a handbag? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm doing the handbag scene. And I I, I don't know what happened. But essentially, I I had a panic attack on stage. You did? Yeah, I had a full-on, I I had a panic attack on stage. And it was the first time I did. 
does that mean that walls are closing in around? Because I've had panic attacks. The, the walls yeah. are closing in around your eyes. You 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 break out into a sweat. You feel nauseous. You can't breathe. What what are the symptoms? I mean, being anxious, getting on a stage and being anxious and nervous is just normal. I mean, I don't think you, I don't think you can be a fully functioning human being and not get on stage in front of a thousand people and not feel some sense of anxiety and nervous. Right? That's typically, normal. Typically, for me, it's I have the anxiety up until the moment that I step on the stage, and then from that moment on, it's adrenaline. Right. It's so just at this point, yeah. So at this point in the play, at this point in the importance of being earnest, I've been on stage for forty-five minutes. Like I've yeah, been on yeah, it. Yeah. So, so I'm fully in it. I'm fine. I'm drenched in sweat. This is the middle of the summer in London. You know, Jack Worthing never leaves the stage for the first act. I mean, I am just going, 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 going. And no, this came out of nowhere. And it was essentially, I just couldn't catch my breath. I was, I was, I was trying to breathe in. And it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't get past here. Yeah. And my hands started tingling. And I thought, uh-oh. This is bad. And I could see David Suchet sort of looking at me and going, what's up? What's up? Something's up. Um, And then he leaves. And then Algernon comes back on. And I've got another 18 minutes. I remember 18 minutes left of the act. I had another 18 minutes left. All I wanted, all I wanted was just to get off stage. (sighs) Take a moment. And I couldn't. I had 18 more minutes. And... um, and uh, yeah, I walked off that act one, I came off and I, I kind of, I mean, if I'm honest, I almost sort of collapsed into my co-star's uh, arms, Phil Cumbus, who knew something was up. And, uh, and, and I, I, just, I just said, Phil, I don't know what the fuck happened. And he said, well, I think I, I know. And you're going to be fine, and we're going to get a cup of tea, and uh, we're going to go and relax. And and uh, and I honestly, I remember thinking, I just got to get through that show. Just got to get through that show. I'm talking about that night. Just get yeah. through that night. Get through that yeah. night. And honestly, I remember finishing that night thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to go on the stage again. And it was awful because I thought, oh, my career is over. That's it. I can't do it. And then, um, and then, uh, I think I I learned a lot of lessons about what it was to be nervous and what are good nerves and bad nerves and about taking care of yourself, you know, when you're doing a long run and healthy thinking and, and things like that. And yeah. I got through the rest of the run. I had another four and a half months to go, by the good way. God. Uh, you know, and um, got through it. And, uh, and I still afterwards, I was terrified of if, I, if I could ever get back on the stage after that because I thought shit you know i just i just don't know you know and then i was uh in new york uh, a couple years later and uh i got this audition for a lillian hellman play on broadway right and little, little um it's called the little foxes with laura linney and cynthia nixon that's right um playing uh regina and birdie and they were going to switch on and off every night were they doing and, that with a flip of a coin i was just curious about that was that no. a flip of a coin or no, no they weren't planned? flip of a coin it was scheduled yeah it was planned but I, I, I honestly, I, I auditioned for it thinking to myself, I don't know, can I do this? Can I do this? And, um, and, uh, and then I got a callback and then I got another callback and then I got offered it. And I remember I was visiting my brother and uh, he, my new niece, Eleanor, and, and Patrick asked me if I could, uh, if I could, um, if I would be the godfather to Eleanor. Yeah. 
And it was the best news ever. And then half an hour later, I got a phone call from my manager. Oh, man. Saying, you're going to be on Broadway. And with Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon playing your mother or aunt, depending on the... And it's a right. great part. It's Leo. It's, it's just yeah. a fantastic, funny, funny role. The only young guy in the play. It's really funny. And and I so, so it was, I'm going to be a godfather... I just got a part on Broadway, and then I remember Patrick and I went to the liquor store to buy some champagne, and I bought a lottery ticket because I was like, Fuck, <laughs> you know, rule, rule, of, "Rule of three, right?" You know. Um, but I do, I do remember. All it was a weird moment because it was holy crap, this is fantastic. I'm so excited about it, but also, I'm terrified mm. because. I haven't been on stage since. And what's going to happen? If, yeah. What if this happens again? Yeah. What if? What if? Uh, and I. I, I uh, D- and it didn't. And, 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 and no, it didn't at all. And I think a few things happened. One, you know, just some good healthy thinking, and and you know, thinking about you know, you can't you can't catastrophize everything, right? I mean, what happens on stage? With if 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 you if I were to have a panic attack on stage again, or if I mess up on stage again, what's the worst thing that can happen? No one's going to die. What are they going to do? You know, like yeah. But the other thing that I think has happened in the last two to three years, and not just in the theater industry, but in our industry as a whole, is this appreciation and understanding of the stresses that are involved in our jobs and yeah. the mental health impact that that can have. And sometimes people have moments. And I remember yeah. um, when, I was doing the, when I was doing The Little Foxes on Broadway, Laura Linney and I almost, we would always go and get Shake Shack together on two oh, show days. And we'd yeah. eat Shake Shack in, in, her, in her dressing room because awesome. she loves, anyway, so, so, so we do that. And I remember one time I was, you know, I don't know what I was talking about. We were talking about something and I mentioned this about the panic attack and, and, and of the last play I did and how awful it was and how I was, you know, I was so nervous about doing another show. And, and she said, and she looked at me and she said, well, Michael, if, if that happened to you, like right now on this show, we would all get together and just be like, Michael, fuck off and go to the Caribbean for two weeks and relax, relax. <laughs> and then in two weeks you come back and if you want to continue with the show, great. And if not, that's okay. It's just Amazing. a job. It's Amazing. not. It's just a job. It's not gonna. It's not gonna affect your career. It's not gonna. I. But, but back in London, when that happened to me, I was just determined that if anyone ever found out, people would think, "Oh, Michael Benz is a. He's he's a. You know, he's nutty. You can't trust no, I, him. I think he's it's got. Very... He's got. He's got. You know. Oh God, he's got. A, he's got a, a panic disorder. Or oh God, you. You know. I mean, I was absolutely convinced, and I. Yeah. That 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 would be that it would be problematic for me professionally, uh, and I think there has been a shift between then and now where people talk about it often. People talk about, hey, they get panic attacks. They do this. Yeah. They do that, and no one bats an eyelid. It would be yeah. no different than if you said, hey, I, I, I have a low blood sugar right now, I, or, you know, I'm diabetic and I, I have a low blood sugar right now, I need to, a day off. Hmm. You, would, no, you, would never, you would never say to anybody on stage, oh, they took the night off because they, they took the week off because of something up with them, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do get the nerves, but I try and channel it in the right and healthy way. I always try to think in terms of, that's an incredible story, by the way. And it's so cool that, um, you know, when you're sitting with someone like Laura Linney, who is one of my favorite actors, that she, uh, 
that she's awesome. <laughs> Just to hear that she's awesome like that. And it is, you know, you, you, you don't always get to pick and choose when uh, to work with people who are tuned in to, uh, we were talking earlier about empathy and, and how other, other people and taking care of other people on your set and things like that. And everybody's had experiences yeah. with both. Uh, so that's just an awesome story about her as well. But um, what do you think it was about that particular line of questioning that nailed you? <laughs> Where are you from? Where were you, you born? Know, you know, I was born I in a handbag. Does, is that a, does that mean something to you? I I, it would know. mean something it, to me. I'm adopted. That's a, that feels. Yeah, yeah right. It, <laughs> sure, it, would, yeah, yeah. it would nail me too. Do you know what, you know what I think a lot of the pressure was, and this comes from classical text in general, is that, is that with classical text, you, 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 you open your mouth, you breathe, you open your mouth, you breathe in, and then you just start speaking. And you speak, 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 for so long. And if it's, especially if it's a comedy, all the words need to be done in exactly the perfect order and yeah. in the right cadence and tone, and you have to hit that last word, yeah. or you don't get the laugh. Right. So in an Oscar Wilde, it's, well, and then you get the laugh. But if you if you if there's just even the tiniest little pause or screw up or trip up or whatever, it's just dead silence. <laughs> and people think they're supposed to laugh, but they don't know for sure. And so I found myself tripping up on certain lines in anticipation. You know what I mean? Like sort of oh, going. Oh really? I mean, David okay. Suchet. D- David Suchet used to <laughs> literally make up make up words, but he'd do it in a particular cadence that the audience were like. Ah! It's all, it's I mean, all part of it, right? Oh yeah, he'd, he'd just go ah, 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 and, and he'd get a big laugh. Um, well, that's the thing I, about those Friends performers too. When you when you watch them, it was striking to me is that the the the, the cast of Friends, those uh, six, were very good practitioner physical uh, comedy practitioners. So you know, and when yeah. you're doing importance of being earnest, it really is the same thing in terms of the f- way that you do the physical comedy of it, and and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this may sound very strange, but I, I, I've played Hamlet. Yeah. And I found playing Jack Worthing in The Importance of Being Earnest Harder. more physically and intellectually straining than Hamlet. So I saw your Hamlet. I want to talk about it for a second because it was amazing. Oh, thanks. It was amazing to see you do it. You were so great in it and you did it effortlessly. That I agree with you. I think there was something to your performance that, I, and then I mean this particularly with the language was effortless in a way that oh, I was thanks, like, Claude. I was just like, I can't. I, I would have to work so hard to get to a place of understanding everything that I'm fucking saying, to to to, <laughs> to, to, to translate all of the speci- the specificity of that language in every single one of those allegories and images and things that he's using to describe to, to to basically throw shade at another character or whatever you know <laughs> um I, I just think that that you know um you you were you were just it was i was it took my breath away to watch you do it oh, it really thank did you, claude thank you jay claude that's very sweet of you to say that um and i but I did have a question for you. I got a little intellectual question for you um, about the, you know, the the, the iconic uh, to be or not to be soliloquy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. So I, there's this great book called Backwards and Forwards, which is this technical manual for reading plays. It's by, da- I, I want to get this right. It's by, 
uh, David Ball. And, mm-hmm. you know, he uses Hamlet as this example to talk about how to, you know, sort of properly read a play. He says that that soliloquy is not suicidal ideation on the part mm-hmm. of Hamlet. He said he points to the fact that Polonius is nearby spying on him and that this is all part of that det- this kind of ruse. Hamlet's pretending to be. Uh, having a breakdown in order to sort of throw it throw it to, so that everyone else sort of dismisses him as like a, some foolish prince while he meanwhile is doing his detectiving or mm. whatever. Um, ha, I mean, this is the most important speech in theater. What, wh- how did you, what was your approach to it? What, what did you talk about with the, it was um, drum ghoul. What's his uh, Dominic drum ghoul. Dominic yeah. drum ghoul. Yeah. Dominic drum ghoul and, and, and co-directed with Bill Buckhurst as well. I mean, I think that, I think that I approached it, um, uh, this is just a, it's just a sort of boring answer, but I approached it the same way that I approached every other speech in the play. Um, but uh, I also didn't want to make it brooding and overly sentimental and quiet. And um, I... Is he thinking of killing himself in your version of it? My, in my version of it, I decided, first of all, I, I came to the realization that I'm never going to be everybody's Hamlet, right? So, every, so, so there's going to be people yeah. in the audience who hate me. You're going to do your that, Hamlet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be people that love what I'm doing, and there are going to be people that hate what I'm doing, and there are going to be a lot of people that are ambivalent about it. And that's okay. And yeah, it, it, people it, are very precious about, yeah. Yeah, there was something very liberating about sort of just accepting that you're never going to be perfect. And for some reason, this speech comes up, right? It's the most famous speech of Hamlet's and um, some would say of all time. But um, my approach to it was why not, uh, why, why not use this as an opportunity for him to go, oh, I know, instead of avenging my father's death or dealing with the grief that I'm having, I could just fucking top myself. Just, just, just kill myself. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, that, so, so I sort, I sort of, I sort of approached it not as this, oh, to be or not to be—that is the question: whether I should live or I should die or whatever. Instead, I sort of came out with it, came out with a lot of energy, and sort of went, "Hey, everyone out there, guess what? I just thought of something: to be or not to be." That's the question, you know, whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the sins and errors of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles of my opposing and them to die. Like, like, that's a solution here. Okay. It's a solution. It's that thing when, it's that thing when people are standing on the subway platform and a train is approaching and you're not suicidal. You don't want to die. But oh, but it's thought, that thing of like, what if I just go, jumped in front of this train? You go like, right oh my God, you know, I could, yeah, this could all yeah. just end. That, that strange like, impulse. Yeah, it's like when you're or, or you're at, you're in somebody's balcony, you know, in downtown LA or, or New York or something, and you you look over the balcony and you're like, wow, just like that, it could just all be over. I don't want to, but I could, and it's fucking crazy to think that that is a possibility. All right. I sort of was thinking that's how I sort of approached the 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 the, the speech um, as a highly intellectual young man going, okay, this is an option. Okay. All right. So I want to ask you then. So here's a question because I was curious about this and I think maybe our listeners might be too. But 
So you went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and I do want to talk about your undergrad too for, uh, at some point here. But mm-hmm. you, when you went to, so you know, going through the RADA program, I think that uh, you know one of the things that we hear a lot about English training is the attention on the language and the words. So that all of that mm-hmm. great Sicily Berry resonance and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, in in the in the language itself. And uh, you know, this is why. And I when I talk to uh, friends of mine, American American trained actors i'm like well this is why that hiddleston and and these folks are getting these parts in the marvel movies is because they're being trained to play gods <laughs> and gods and, in, and kings yeah kings and, and queens and, gods. and in the yeah, united yeah, yeah. states we're being trained to play emo sad boys who work behind a <laughs> blockbuster counter or whatever it is today so and it's all about our feelings right and it's this it's that attention it's that emphasis on the strasberg and the so mike i mean i am because what the way I, I guess i would approach the to be or not to be is i would go to those times where i have thought about suicidal ideation you know which mm-hmm. doesn't thankfully doesn't happen that often but you know the, there have been a couple of moments and i think that you know um so i that's that's curious to me, and I wonder a little bit about what was the training? Did you get this? Were you getting Stanislavski? Were you getting? Did you get any Ad, Stella Adler? Did you get any Lee Strasberg? What what did you get? Rada seemed to sort of pride itself on not um, having any one particular method. Uh, you, they, they sort of prided themselves on not having one. Um, they, 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 they often talked about this idea of having a toolbox where you, you take out one tool for the particular job that you have. So if you're doing this job, you, you take out this tool. If you're using this job, you want to take out that tool. If you're Mike, if you're working for Mike Lee, you might want to take out that tool or, you know, um, yeah. uh, uh, yes, es- essentially it was a Stanislavski based training. Okay. It, it, it started, it, we, we did a lot of, ac- uh, a lot of the Uda Agen, um, uh, acting exercises. Uh, okay. We did a lot of that stuff, a lot of object exercises. We so never did the, sort of sense the, memory stuff like that. Or yeah, anything. so the early Stanislavski has had this sort of emphasis on uh, emotional recall. And however, the the later Stanislavski sort of turned away from that. It was in that period, I guess, where Stella Adler, her mother had died. She was not. She was depressed about acting and and did not want to be using her own life experience and feelings over and over again. She took this world tour with Harold Klarman and took a class, a workshop with the old man. Uh-huh. There he was in Paris, eighty nine or however old he was, and went to him and said to Stanislavski, "I don't like acting anymore. These are this is what's going on." And I guess he said something about, "I oh, I don't care what you, I, I don't I don't do that anymore. The thing about using your own feelings, it's not about you." Yeah, I'm sure he said it just like this. He said, "You know, it's a it's about the character and what the character is doing." Now Adler talks about a uh, feelings as being a byproduct of the doing. You you focus on what does the character want, what are they doing, and then as a byproduct of that, if you catch feelings, great. But that's not the that's not where you start. And I think that so I guess that I'd I'd be curious about was that a little bit similar in its in, in the treatment of Stanislavski? Was it that later sort of part of his approach that evolved approach? <laughs> I, I, the, the, the approach at RADA was very, um, uh, let the words do the work. Okay. It was very, now, now, of course, you're, it's, it's going to be different depending on what teacher you were with. But for the most part, if I had to sum up the general approach, it was let the words do the work 
And if emotion flows because of the circumstances that you're in and the, you know, where your character is, then by all means, yeah, let it happen. But if you just focus on the words doing the work for you, that's you're giving the best service to the story and to the play. And you will find yourself having emotion instead of needing to generate it. Generate it, right. Yeah. And I, I think I that, do feel, yeah. and I wonder how you feel about this. The older that I get, it's easy for me to generate now. It was when I was a kid, it would have been, it would have taken me, I don't think I would have been able to do it um, yes. at all. Yeah. To think about your feelings. When we were in high school, no, no way. No. Be no, able to no, interpret no, no. how I was feeling about something? No way. No. Not until no. not until college did I start to figure that part out. But now, if you said you know think about something sad or you know or whatever it is, I think now it's it's right there. So much of it, I think, is right oh there. yeah, completely. And it's and it's and it's it, well, it's just life experience. I mean, you know, yeah. nineteen years old, you don't. I don't know. I mean, I know for me anyway. When I was nineteen years old, I, I'd never been in love out of love dumped been dumped dumped someone else you know it, it, you, these are these are all the how can you how can you experience these things um on stage in a real way if you haven't kind of experienced them yourself in in real life and then and then and then there are some some actors that are able to do that um but no i i think that at, at rada the 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 first the first few months was very much focused on like poetry and and language yeah and sort of being able to just speak language understand what it is that you're saying and not get in the way of it and then from that i think it was that we did a realist project so there was a bunch of checkoff that came in but we didn't do shakespeare we didn't do any classical text until the end of the first year and i think that was the the idea was that you want to sort of get the bullshit out Hmm. Get, yeah. get, get the actor stopping acting, right? It's, it's like those Uta Hagen exercises. It's like um, the sleeping partner exercise. So that was one of them, the Uta Hagen, where you, someone's asleep and you need to, your, your partner or whoever is next to you and you need to get up and get dressed and get ready and brush your teeth and everything without like that. Them and up. Get out without waking them up. Yeah. And if, if the person sleeping can hear anything, they're supposed to wake up. And we, it's funny because you, you get a lot of actors who are you know who are just starting training they're doing all this pantomiming and yeah 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 and brushing teeth you're right you know it's i'm i'm exaggerating but but you know the moment you see that who got into rada (laughs) (laughs) you know you know what i mean it's sort of like it's sort of like but it but it's true you got to sort of go what what are you doing? You're showing it. Just 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 be it. Just you do know? it. Just be it. Right. And if and if you and so then you you mix that with 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 poetry and and doing sonnets and and just sort of appreciating language. You combine those two together. Just being and being with the language and just allowing it to flow out of you. Yeah. Um, suddenly, it, it, magic starts to happen, and then emotion comes or not. I mean, I think that. Um, it, it was. It, it took me a long time to realize. I think, I, t- I think it took me a long time to realize that when so many, so many, so many teachers and other directors have said, you, you know, just let the words do the work. And I always go, well, what do you mean? I can't just let the words do the work. Otherwise, I'd just be. I'm just. I'm just a robot. I'm just. I'm just saying words. Surely I have to do something as an actor. And 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 it's sort of. 
it's sort of taken me a little while to understand what that means. Mm. It, it, it's sort of, um, it's, it's sort of amazing sometimes because you don't even do that much. Like you're just letting the words flow out of you. And then afterwards people come up and go, Oh my God, that was so good. And you're like, yeah. I didn't even do anything. All I said, all I did was just say the words. And it's a just, it's amazing how like really good language can make you look so good. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think that I remember hearing it. Uh, there was an interview with Lawrence Olivier. I think he was on uh, Dick Cavett's show. And he talked about he talked about how it's sort of like he talked about that they, they, they can happen concurrently. It's the language and then it's or he called it the technique. Mm-hmm. And I would based on what you're saying, it sounds to me like that's what that is. It's the technique. You're you're the the language stuff. I think he would have referred to that way. And then he talked about the emotional life as being like the the jockey that's riding the horse. Like that's how mm-hmm. he put it. The the, the horse mm-hmm. was the the technique, and the jockey was him and his feelings and things like that. Um, that's that, that that's perfect. And I remember I remember somebody at Broad saying to me, I think it was the principal saying, you know, I don't know that I was. I was working too much on technique. And I remember him saying, you know, technique is not just a jacket you put on when you get on stage. You know, it's not, that's not, it's not just your costume. You know, you, you have to bring something too. So it's, it's, it's that fine. Yeah. I think the balance, thing, the problem uh, yeah. I think that I see a lot with American actors is that they think it's all supposed to be real and it's stuff, stuff that really happened to them. But then the problem is that they don't put in the importance of the moment because they'll come from a place of like, they just got a sandwich and they're like, this is how I'm feeling right now. But it's not, they're not, they're feeling, they're kind of in a neutral place. They're thinking about where they parked their car and that's what they're feeling, but it's not big enough for the moment that's happening in the, in the, in that particular scene. I think that the Strasbourg stuff, why it worked so well when it was happening was you had a generation of folks coming back from World War II who were so full up with real life that, that they, they, to drop into the importance of the stakes of some piece where they would just be living and breathing as themselves, it made more sense than to a generation that has grown up on computers communicating their biggest angers in all caps as opposed to face-to-face with people or whatever. <laughs> right. Right, 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 exactly, yeah. Yeah. How? What was the yeah. audition process for uh, RADA? How many of those auditions? And also, they don't, I mean, how many, you're, you know, you're sort of on the fence, but how many Americans did they take? Uh, well, it was interesting because actually I didn't, I, they didn't know I was American when I, when I showed up. Interesting. Oh, they, so you, but you had been in the States for that previous four years, Yeah, right? they didn't really know that. <laughs> so you walked in. You, so your accent never went from where it is now, this mid-Atlantic, to sort of like it didn't go back to states. I after. auditioned as an English person. You did it purposefully. Yeah. yeah. So I went in. And, so I get that, and I, I think that you because you it's very close to how you just talk, and then after having lived there again, I I, I notice when I at the times that I've hung out with you over the years that it's it it changes a little bit, and it's it I mine was too, even when I was in the UK, it's just the way that mm. you phrase things, right? Like we used to say, like, are you going out tonight? Are you going to the pub? Are you going to? Yeah, it's the it's the inflection. Yeah, yeah, it's the inflection. Um, so you did I, it. Kind of, did you do that in part because you thought about the American thing and whether or not they would that would be a little bit harder to come in with that sort of a kind Yeah, of I guess stuff. I did on some level. I sort of thought, no, I want them to think of me as a London-based actor. Yeah. I didn't want them to think of me as a the Yank, you know? Um, yeah, that's what we for- get. That's what you get, folks, over in the UK, by the way. That is the expression. That's the yeah. That's the thing you hear, the Yank. Yeah. Right. And so so in my, in my year, uh, 
there, well, actually, interestingly enough, in my year, there was actually only one real Yank, Aidan O'Reilly, um, the fantastic actor. Um, and then I suppose the other two Yanks were me and Una Chaplin, who technically isn't actually a, an American citizen. She's, uh, Una Chaplin is a wonderful, wonderful actress. Um, uh, uh, Geraldine Chaplin's daughter and 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 oh, grand, granddaughter oh, okay. of um of, of Charlie, Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin. She, yeah. So I, I only mention I only mention that Geraldine and, and Charlie Chaplin because they they, they uh, I think Charlie famously renounced his U.S. citizenship. So so ah, right, so right. so it never passed down to Una. Um, so so really, Una I think is Spanish and British. Got it. So by, na- so by actually, nationality, right? Yeah, by nationality. So so, so actually, I suppose. I, I suppose me and Aiden were the Yanks, um, but I, but they didn't know I was until uh, I showed up on apparently, day Apparently, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I, I the, the audition was, uh, I think it was three, three or four auditions for Rada. Okay. How many monologues? Two or God, what five? did I do? I did one, two, let me think about this. One, two, three, four, and a song. I think it was four. You had to sing too. What did you sing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to sing. I sang. I had a sang terrible an, I sang an Irish f- song called. Uh, oh, what was it? Oh my God! Oh no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sang it. I, I, I don't know why I did. I don't know why. I just thought I don't. I don't know what to sing for you. Well, that so sounded just, that sounded very nice. You have a nice travel. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a you know, it wasn't. It's not I sang. Um, I sang that there was a kite song from uh, Charlie Brown or something. Let uh, and it was. It's a bad song. I don't know why I sang it, but that was oh, the one it. that whoever I was working with prepared for me. But and it was. I guess it worked out enough. But um, yeah, yeah. Do you? I want. Do you want to talk about? So you went to Georgetown in between, and I wanted mm-hmm. to start right away by asking you: Do you know John Mulaney? Yeah, John was in the same class as I was. Holy shit! Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, John, so can so, you get so John, him on this podcast for me? <laughs> I could definitely contact him if you wanted. I mean, oh my god! I, I mean, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, um, he. So what? So when we, we were in the same year at Georgetown, and yeah. he he was far more interested in the comedy route. So there was there was this um, comedy group on campus. Um, that was it. Nick Kroll as well. Yeah, so Nick Kroll was in it, oh, uh, wow. and at the time when I mean when I got there, Nick Kroll was there, and Mike Birbiglia I think had just graduated. Oh, really? I think that's what it was. Yeah, or maybe Mike was still there. I can't remember, but 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 the improv group was fantastic. I mean, and it was you know. I don't know, once every month that we'd meet in a particular part of Georgetown Bulldog Alley and they'd, and they'd do an improv show and it was fantastic. And John was part of that and we'd hang out afterwards and, and John was fantastic. But John always wanted the, was, was just absolutely determined with the comedy route. Uh, I acted in a couple short films with him, I think. Did you? I feel like he would have a nickname for you, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like he loved, he was like Michael, right? The British guy, <laughs> love this actually, guy. That yeah. is a pretty good Mulaney. That's a very good Mulaney. I uh, could but, see but it. He, I, I can tell you. I, I can tell you what. My, but but my, my my nickname is Michael Benz. <laughs> Michael Benz coming in because yeah, that's like, that's uh, or Benzie. 
Benzie. Right. That was my nickname at Georgetown. Benzie and or Michael Benzie. Did you... I, did, how, did he... Did you know... So did you know Kroll well as well? Not really. I didn't know Kroll well very well. Uh, he was... <laughs> did I, I, did, I did Kroll well very well. Uh, I didn't know Nick Kroll. Uh, did they get I to see him. you act at all? In the, did you act? That's the question I wanted to ask. Did you act when you were at school? Yes, I did. You did? Okay, I, did. I was curious yeah, about that or whether or not you took a little break. Because I know you were studying, I think, theology, right? I was studying psychology and theology only because I literally just sort of went into college with no idea of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I... I showed up at Georgetown and it was that sort of first two weeks of school where everybody is signing up for this group and signing up for that group. And, and I, I honestly, this sounds ridiculous, but honestly, I I just, I just, I I showed up and I thought I need a social life. Like I need need a social life. And, And the only way that you get a social life is one, you hang out with the people that you live which, you know, you don't really get a choice in that matter. Like, you know, the people yeah. that literally live in your dorm and around you. you right. know, what, if, what if they're people that you don't want to be friends with, right? <laughs> or you go and you find people who have similar interests for you. So I just signed up for everything. And one of them was one of the, one of the student-run theater groups. And so I signed up for on the mailing list. And then, and then I got an audition for this uh, Christopher Durang play called The Marriage of Bet and Boo. And, uh, and I auditioned for that and I did that and, and my God, I made some of the best friends I've ever had in my whole life just in that production. And, uh, God, I got a social life out of that. I mean, we went wild. (laughs) The theater group, the theater social life at Georgetown was pretty great. It was just, it was just what I needed. Um, so, uh. So it was that, that that's what I did while I was there. And then, yeah, the improv social life was pretty awesome, too. And that's how I got to know John a little bit. Um, that's so cool. I would very much like to meet him at some point. I think he's fantastic. Um, he's very nice. Very, very nice guy. Um, did you, uh, I guess I should say at this point, it's because I don't want to, I, I don't want to run through these, but you've worked with now some, a lot of like big, like, um, in addition to Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, sort of male stars. Like uh, you did, a, I guess a, a week, I would guess, on Downton Abbey with uh, Paul Giamatti. Uh-huh. Yeah. You you did uh, the Tempest with, that I also got to see. You were nice. I think yes, you, got, you did see that. You, you may have gotten us yes. seats for that. I'm not, but I do remember we we got to hang out afterwards. But um, and that was with you were Ferdinand to Rafe Fiennes. Prospero, and that was directed by Trevor Nunn. Mm -hmm. Um, Trevor Nunn, by the way, I think my favorite, Trevor Nunn, maybe Nicholas Heitner, I guess, are the two that are, you know, and and I didn't get to see a lot of Sam Mendes stuff, but I guess those would be like the Mm. two, three people that I, but I do remember meeting Trevor Nunn once when I was a kid, just going over to the National Theater by myself. (laughs) (laughs) You have a character. Is he? Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, but he's uh, amazing. I mean, I, I just love him. What was um? I guess I do want to know how was how was Ray Fiennes? Great. Am I, I saying mean, his it, name right? Yes, Ray Fiennes. Yeah, I think he's one yeah. of the best actors we got, and I'm yeah, and he was great. I I I felt very lucky because all of Ferdinand's stuff is with Prospero. Yeah. So I I, I got to uh, in, in, in all of my scenes, he's present. Even the scene just between Ferdinand and Miranda 
when they're sort of courting each other, he's present on the stage. And it's, it, so I felt very lucky that I got to just sort of watch him. I felt particularly lucky that, you know, Prospero says his big moment, uh, his big, that lovely speech of um, our revels now are ended. These are actors that are foretold you are all melted into air. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. He's, yeah. he's saying that to Ferdinand. Um, and that was pretty cool to experience that every single night, just watching an actor in the height of his brilliance sort yeah. of br- melding that stagecraft, that almost sort of old school stagecraft, sort of almost Olivier-like, um, with just great heft and, and, and emotion. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool watching him on stage, watching this vein pop out of his side as he's doing Shakespeare to a thousand people. It was pretty cool. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's also just a very nice guy. That's great to hear. Um, yeah. You, uh, how was Paul Giamatti? <laughs> I think, I mean, honest to God. I, That's going to be the rest I, of this interview is going to be like, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to, I have had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun with people over the years doing jobs. But I mean, Paul Giamatti and I, I had so much fun hanging oh out God, with him. He awesome. is the funniest guy um we just i i think what it was was even though even though you know i i was born in london i grew up in london and you know i consider myself half from there and everything like that the truth is paul and i were two americans on that set you know and it was it was the it was the it was the finale um, it was the season finale. So it was, right. sort of, it was sort of like two episodes squeezed into one. It was like an hour and 45 minute episode. It was a big, big, big episode. So it took a long time to, to film. And, um, and th- there were so many scenes where it's just like the whole cast, like a big ball scene or, or a big, big dinner scene or whatever. And it was just, it was just funny, right? Because it's like me and Paul Giamatti in the dress in, in in the you know the green room surrounded by the cast of Downton Abbey and Maggie Smith's over there and of course there was also Shirley MacLaine involved oh um, right yeah and she was on the other side of the room oh quite God. a bit but but Paul Paul Giamatti and I just like we just had a really really fun time <laughs> sort of goofing off making fun of things and um it was it, it was really great actually Maggie Smith um one time we were doing we were doing the scene, and I don't know what it was, but like he was he was facing me and I was facing him, like this, and to the left Maggie Smith was sitting down on a chair, and I don't know it was a very hot day, and we were in one of these old 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 houses, not the big Highclere Castle, not the Downton Abbey Castle, but it was somewhere else, yeah, out in the country, and. I don't know. Things were going on a long time. Nerves were fraying. But anyway, Paul Giamatti and I were just laughing our asses off. And Maggie Smith shushed us. Uh. Like, big time. <laughs> big time. And sort of looked at me again and shushed me and, look, and, went, and went, shh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like, I mean, she, was like out I mean, of sister act. I mean, she didn't know who the fuck I was. You know, but just, shh, boy. <laughs> and my face, my face. All the blood drained went, out of your face. Went, yeah. But I was facing Paul and he kept going because he didn't hear it. So oh, he's laughing. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're joking and riffing and everything like that, but he doesn't know it. So suddenly I just went. And it was like, it was just very funny because I don't think he understood what happened, but 
he must have thought like, whoa. What did I say? Yeah. Michael's not into this anymore. (laughs) Uh, And I had to explain to him after. I was like, oh, God, man, I was trying to get you to shut up. Meg Smith just told us to shut up. Oh, you did. Good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I told him eventually. Um, But it was it was uh, it was I I remember seeing it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We went we ended up going out one night and staying out way too late with other members of the cast. It was was just it was just a fun. Oh, hell yeah. And just going to the just going to the pub. Well, yeah, pub and then some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to, Where else yeah, do you we go in... after the pub? And in, in, in anywhere in the UK, you'd have to go to you'd have to go to a sort of a nightclub after that, right? Yeah, and that's what we did. We got in a car and we went to Reading. The cast we of were... Downton Abbey went to a fucking nightclub in Reading. I mean, when I say the cast of Downton Abbey, I'm not talking about you know Hugh Boneville and Maggie Smith, but yeah, yeah, you know, a few of the youngers, the young younger ones. Oh my god, pa- Paul was Paul Giamatti was up for it. Oh yeah! Fuck yeah! No, he That's was he, he was really really great. He was um, he seems like it. He he was a re- really really just there to have a good time, but also do some really good work. It was great. Now you did this icon now kind of kind of an iconic scene um, in the in the Joker movie. You were one of the Wall Street Three. Is that what they were called? Yeah, yeah. I did rewatch yeah. this the other night. Did you? Uh, this is the first time he this character kills anybody. What the fuck mm-hmm. was that day? Like, was it more than one day? Well, it was interesting because I remember when I got the audition, it was like Wall Street number one or two or whatever. And I remember thinking, well, what's this about? Like, I don't... Very I little these, information. These characters don't even have a name. I don't, I don't know. Like, what, what, what is this? And so I, so I, but I, but I did it. And, and, and then, and then I, and then I remember I got this call back and my manager's explaining, you know, you, you, you it's a, it's a, it's going to be a callback, but you're going to be with Todd Phillips and you're going to be with, you, it's going to take like a couple hours because hmm. of match matching and, and things like that. And I was like, I was like, what the hell is, are these characters? These characters don't even have character names. I was like, what, what? And I thought maybe Todd Phillips is just like a, like crazy micromanager where he's like, even, even picking, like being really specific about like, background artist i have no idea um but it wasn't until i got into the audition that i realized oh oh okay this is a when big we were scene doing the scene movie. yeah you suddenly go oh okay it basically this is his first kill yeah this is the moment when when joker turns into something else and yeah. um and um yeah so so that's that that's well that, i mean that actual that actual subway scene took um i think i think it took like four Four days, really, to, really? to, to yeah. sort of properly get down. I mean, we he wanted he wanted to get it from every angle and every thing, and it just it was just such a crucial and pivotal scene. Yeah, that that um, I think when we were doing it, we realized just how right he needed to get it. He's, um, he's one of these actors, Joaquin, that is, a, I would call, consider a very American actor, where it's like everything that he's doing is coming from a place of uh, genuine pain. Uh-huh. That la- that laugh that he does as the Joker, I think we've all done that laugh at some point yeah. in our lives when we are deeply, deeply depressed and something happens that may, and now he, they framed it under that, C- I think it's called CPOD, that condition, I'm probably getting that completely wrong. I'm just, I, I think C- it's, 
I think there's a. I, th- I think that might be the name. I remember hearing about the name of this condition where you la- laugh even when it doesn't match your emo- your emotions. It's oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh it's, okay. It's probably not CBOD. I'm making that part up. But it's. Uh, but it was an interesting choice. But I. But there's. But the way. But that doesn't matter. What he's doing as an actor is he's going to that place where it. Where something is so dark, so depressing that it just it, you can't help but. Uh, summon uh, the sort of uh, sour laughter and um, some of it I think also was uh, a little bit of the the sort of the just the doing of it just the 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 the, the pitching the voice up I think there was some of that in there too but definitely with everything that there was a little bit of an outtake of him from the set where he's somebody I guess called him share or something and he responded said "Can, can you just like you know, like, I, what's the problem with Cher? You know, she's an icon, and she just shut. It's you, man. Just shut. I'm trying to find something. As you said, I'm trying to find something real. Something, right? And yeah, I think I did see that. Yeah. So, so I guess, I guess I'm a little curious. Like, here you are. This is you, this is a completely different kind of, I would say, world for you. Not that you didn't do brilliant in it, but it's two very different approaches. What was that like? What was it like being in there with him for those four days? Did you talk at all to Joaquin? Did he? Did you? kind of give him a little space how did it go um well i mean when 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 i was actually on set with him in that subway he he's in full joker (laughs) fucking rad did it scare was it scary yeah kind of it would have creeped me out that would have definitely creeped me out well yeah and and he he when 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 he in between each take, he went off to have to, 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 to go be alone, essentially. And I think that was his that was his that was his thing. Um, but yeah, the laugh, the laugh, um, I mean, yeah, when you when you heard it, and especially when you were up close to it, it felt painful. You know what I mean? Like it felt like, ooh, he is scratching up and the phlegm is coming up. But you could tell that he was doing it on purpose to get as much phlegm up mm. so that it was sort of almost almost like when he was breathing in you could hear the you know um yeah, yeah it was it was uh it, it it was it was pretty intense <laughs> the other thing that was pretty interesting was that he he had a body double um as well um for you know especially when we were beating the shit out of him um and um even though i i should say Joaquin Phoenix wanted to be down on the ground. Yeah, I bet he would did. I bet he wanted to time. have his ass kicked but, I mean, the whole time. There yeah. were there were some moments when I think they were like, okay, but come on, like we, you know, if we're going to be beating the shit out of your ribs, you know, we do need you here tomorrow too. Um, so there was this fantastic uh, body double there, and um, and uh, he looked so much like Joaquin Phoenix. They looked so similar that there Weird. were moments when I was when I wasn't even sure who was. Who is who? I mean, it was interesting. It was it was, it was very interesting. Um, no, I mean, it was it was it was really pretty cool. I mean, I I I, I got this um, phone call uh, that that there was going to be a read through of the script, and I thought, oh, okay, fantastic. You know, I mean, I I I, I thought I don't know why you want me to be there for it. It's only one scene, but but sure, I'll do it. And. Um, and uh, and we went to it, and my God, I showed up, and there was like I don't know, there were like twelve of us in this mm-hmm. room, and in walks De Niro, and in walks Joaquin Phoenix, and in walks Todd Phillips, and I'm sitting oh, there, and just like, and I'm like, what? And Carl uh, Lindstedt, who plays one of the other Wall Street guys, is there with me, and we're just looking at each other, going like, 
what the fuck are we doing here? Wow. And, um, and yeah, Todd Phillips sort of came up to us and was like, hey, guys, hey, hey, hey. Um, look, it's just a really important scene. And I thought it would be, I figured you guys would think that it was really cool to be here and do the read through. And he said, also, if you don't mind, would you mind just sort of like reading in some of the other parts that I haven't cast yet? Hell yeah. I was, I was like, we were like, yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, and oh it was great God. because, and I was sitting next to, um, uh, I ended up sitting next to, to Bill Camp. Oh, great. Just such an amazing actor. Amazing actor, yeah. And I I mean, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm sitting next to Bill Camp. Like, that is so fucking cool. And then it's like, and then he, Bill Camp, leans over to me and goes, uh, hey, we're sitting at a table. Like, that's De Niro. That's De Niro over there, yeah. and, And that's Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm sitting there going like, yeah, but like, you're Bill Camp, man. <laughs> like, you're Bill Camp. Um, and it was funny because I actually told him that story about three weeks ago because I bumped into him in the street in Brooklyn. Awesome. Yeah. It's amazing because Just, that, that movie, What I one thing I did notice about that movie is that they pack a lot of very great people mm. into a couple of little, you know, not there are people in that movie who are in that movie for a scene. But you're yeah. like, oh, my God, that's, uh, you know. Yeah, both him and Shea Wiggum. You're like, oh fuck yeah. yeah, and it's not that many. It's a couple of scenes, but but yeah. man, is it fun! It's fun to just see everybody who pops up in it. And um... yeah, and I think also while what was what was interesting about it was, I I don't think that maybe some people did know this, but I don't think that anybody fully anticipated just how much of a of a reaction the movie would have. I, I, I mean, I, I, I would never have guessed that this movie would have grossed. You know, if somebody said to me, "Oh, this movie's going to make over a billion dollars," like this, the, did it make like over a billion be, dollars? Yeah, yeah, it was the first R-rated movie ever to gross over a billion dollars. If 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 you had told me that, I would have thought, I, I don't, I don't think so. I'm. But I, it, it, I mean, it's extraordinary. I it's no a idea. lightning rod. I think there was a, a lot of people who. There, there's a lot of commentary on how it is uh, either, you know, derivative or that it was, um, you know, like, uh, um, what do they call it? Like sort of a, a, a lightning rod for, for angry men. And it, I, I, I understand some of that. I, although on rewatching this time, I really thought of it more as like pastiche. Like it, it is a little, it's just a... It's got a little Scorsese from King of Comedy and also from Taxi Driver. But I actually think if, you know, if you had said, like, how do you want to do the story of how the Joker came to be? I thought it was a I thought it was a a smart way to figure out how to uh, create the character. I thought the timeline was good. There are certain things about it that make me a little bit nervous in terms of guys who watch it who are angry right now, who, you know, want to want to see somebody getting their revenge on with, you know, guns and things like that. And in um, but uh, it just but that's more to speak to the time that I think that we currently live in. You know, if you compare a movie like this to A Clockwork Orange, which also got banned in the UK when that film came out, you know, there's there's something about the Joker movie that I think sort of lives in that in that world but now they're going to do another one much to the chagrin of the critics that did not love it i thought it was uh i thought it was oh i I didn't know that they were going to do another one is that right 
They're ta- so there's talk of them doing another one, and they are looking at the. The, the only thing I've heard about is is that there's a, an idea going around that there m- would be multiple Jokers, which I think makes sense uh, well, based on how I the first it, one ended. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I mean, I I personally think it should be a, a Wall Street three origin story. Of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, about about the three the three, the three guys one, the three wonderful boys who lost their life on that subway and. And, and and what were there? I'm waiting for that phone call. I'm sure, that'll gross a billion. Let me know. Yeah, let me know if you get that phone call. Um, <laughs> the I want to ask you about one more project, um, which is uh, working on Greyhound with yeah. uh, with Tom Hanks. And mm. um, you know, I, this is the this is the for, I think for so many actors, this is the ultimate uh, uh, achievement is to be either working in a film with him or to be directed by him. In this case, it was both. Um, how did this one come about? Did you, uh, did you, did you guys hit it off as I imagine you did? And uh, uh, what was the filming like on that one? Well, just to say he didn't direct it. Aaron Schneider directed it. Oh, pardon me. But he did, he did adapt the screenplay. Oh, that's what I'm So that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So he did adapt it from, uh, yeah. Um, What's the director's uh, name? So I can apologize. Aaron, Aaron Schneider. Aaron Schneider, listen, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I'm, big, I'm a big fan of submarine movies from Das Boat and the other ones, and I thought this one was right in there in the canon. Um, good job. It's not a submarine movie. It's not a submarine movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, what are they above? Oh, they're yeah, above the water. A... Listen. <laughs> this is going Aaron, so there well. Have been, there have been a few battleship movies out there. Uh, great yeah, ones. yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually no, they focus cool. on the plans. Um, I, uh, I, you know, it was, it was really, really cool. I, I, I was doing the little foxes on Broadway and I'm sitting there and it's, it's act. It's what was it? I, the end of act three and, um, the curtain goes down, come up and I go out for the curtain call and I'm looking up. And I'm trying to find my friend Jess, who just flew in from Ireland. Uh, and she'd flown in that day and she was there. So I was trying to find her and I knew she was somewhere like in the fifth row or something. And I, because she'd just flown in, she flew in to see me. And so I was trying to find her so I could just do a little, like, you know, bow and, and just look a little cheeky wave, you know? Yeah. And I'm trying to, and I'm seeing her going like this behind some guy in front of her. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that guy's that guy keeps, and she keeps going like this. And eventually I realized that guy is Tom fucking Hanks, right? Oh, and yeah. he's like right there. And I'm like, oh. Um, so anyway, I, I, I'm like, holy crap, Tom Hanks is here. That's so cool. So go up to the dressing room. I'm getting changed and da, 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 da. And I go out to the front of house and I'm trying to find Jess because uh, I told her to come in. And... Um, and I can't find her, and she's taking a while in the bathroom and, and everything. And so anyway, I decide, okay, well, I'll go back up to the dressing room. And as I'm walking down this ramp, I'm, down, I'm by myself, and I'm walking down this ramp, and suddenly I just hear, hey! And it's at the bottom of the rank, ramp. I look down, and it's Tom Hanks bundling up. And, like, and yelling after you? Yeah, yeah. Hey! Hey! You were great, man. And he starts shaking. Holy and, he starts shit. Saying, and then he starts saying, like, I read your bio. This is your first Broadway show, and you went to Rada. And, da, 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 da. and like, he remember, like, I just I couldn't believe it. I was like, 
I don't I don't get starstruck very very often. But no, but, but it's Tom. That, it's Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. That 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 was a moment where I just thought he has the, the, honestly growing up. Growing up, there was yeah. no other actor for no, me no, that, no. That, that that did it for me, and I, I just yeah. I I couldn't believe it. And I remember so distinctly walking away from that and thinking to myself, I want to work with this guy. Like I yeah. I want to somehow work with this guy. And holy crap, I go and I audition for this movie. I I, I don't know, like four months later. Wow. And and I and I So he just remembered and said, well, you know, he, this is Well so well here's the thing. I auditioned for it twice. I think I auditioned for it twice. I showed up, we did a we did boot camp down on a ship down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I um uh showed up to set and it just so happened that in the, the in in the original script, in the filming script the very, very, very first scene was Captain Carling, officer on deck, and the cat, and 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 um, Hanks. Hanks, right? And it's the first moment in the script, and it's literally, "Hello, Captain. Good morning. This is what's going on." Yeah. And and I'm the first officer on deck, so I was. So this is day one filming. So I'm like, oh my god, you know, and I'm 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 nervous. I mean, you, know, you want to be about nervous. Right? This this would get me too, of course. Yeah, you 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 because you, know, you got to hit your mark, and it's all the oh technical my god, stuff. and it's yeah. and it sure. and it's also it's just different if it's like you know if it's just different if it's day three, four, five. You know, people yeah. are starting to get into the rhythms and the relationships of everything. But right. day one, right. his movie, it's his script, it's yeah. his production company, and I've got the first fucking line. I'm like, don't you know. I just, I, you suddenly just feel like you're this big, you know, and there he is on set. And, uh, and, uh, we rehearsed a little bit with him in the days ahead of time. But, but anyway, the point is, is that we're all ready. We're ready to go. And he just comes up really close to me and he just leans in real close and he goes, and he goes, I don't know about you, but I'm shitting myself. Uh. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, I'm not shooting myself as much now that you said that to me. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. God, first day. Hate it. Hate it. And it really did. It just, I don't know if he saw, I don't know if you he saw that I was thing? nervous. Do you think I just he, don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But he was he so, he was so damn cool. He was just the nicest, nicest guy. And yeah. it wasn't until like three or four days later, I'm sitting there and I was talking to him and he said something about theater. And I said something about, well, you know, the, 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 the um something about little foxes and and he literally jumps out of his chair and he goes that's how i know you oh come on are you serious that's how i know you of course god this i've like three four days i've been looking at you and i go i know this guy i know this guy isn't that weird oh and i was god. like oh i thought that's why and i was like oh i thought that's why you cast that's me. why i was cast yeah yeah, well, that's a like, great. No. That's what, what a wonderful thing to find out that so it was, was nice. You impressed, yeah. You impressed him, and then you impressed him again, and you impressed somebody. Else. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it was. It, it was. It, it's just he. He. He was just the most um, generous, um, uh, giving guy. Uh, who. Who, of course, also has to do this. I don't know Herculean task of being the leading man one of the most famous people in the world one of the most revered actors 
surrounded by other actors who just want to talk to him. Yeah. And not be... An asshole. Not be an asshole. And I'm it's telling amazing. you, yeah. it is the it, amount it, of energy it, it takes. Yeah, the amount of energy not to be an, an asshole. asshole. Yeah. So when I hear stories of like certain people on set being assholes, I I, I just immediately think, well, he didn't do it. Yeah, exactly. He, does, he doesn't do it, yeah. and he doesn't do it. And there's yeah. no that there was one moment on set where I felt like he he didn't snap. He just basically went, hey, can we keep rolling? <laughs> Yeah. Like as yeah. in, can Nothing. I just do it one Nothing. more time? Like yeah. as in, like as in, can I just do it one more time? Yeah. Like we don't have to cut. Oh, I've and seen. That was it. I've seen wild shit. I've seen people oh. stars yelling at people. Yeah. I know. And it and it when you see and I was I've talked to somebody else on here about uh, Mark Harmon because he's this way too. He's just uh, yeah. he's just such a he's um uh down to the details like just a, a nice guy G- gives people phone calls after their after the show air. oh that's so job. cool that's so nice they they do and um he's a class act class act and it's when you see it happen in real life yeah then you know that then you know it's possible then you, you you know uh it's leadership it's leadership, it's leadership. Because we all hope to get to that point and we you know we would we would want to create that kind of an environment for folks to work. And I, I just think that, you know, well, like, like we just said, it takes, it takes more effort to, to, to be that guy, to keep your calm, to, yeah, to, it does. to, to, to be the measured person and the leader. And it really does start from the top. And I think he just, he just knew that it was, it was a real, it was a, it was a real, real pleasure. And even just like little things, like, like we were, we were on the, um, we were on the ship and it was, uh, it was, um, there was a, it's a moment when one of the guys, uh, s- several of the soldiers die after an attack and, and the, the coffins are draped in American flags and they're going off the side. And he, uh, and he, um, and then the, 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 the three guys with the guns, you know, fire, you know, as, as the coffins go off the side into the water. Yeah. And, um, and they were blanks, obviously. And, after, you know, we did many, many, many takes of it. It's incredibly loud. Um, yeah, yeah. And these little, these little cases, the little cases of the bullet case. They're hot, are, right? Yeah, they're hot and they fall on the ground, right? Yeah. And right up cut, you can see him dip down. He dips down and he picks one up and he goes, because it, it, it's hollow now. So it does a little whistle and he puts one in his pocket and he says, and he, and he, and he just looked at me and he said, I like to keep little mementos. And I said, oh, that's so cool. You did that thing where you go, and he said, yeah, yeah, see, it's empty here. And you go, and then you keep him. He said, I just like to keep little mementos. It's nice that way. And I was like, oh, well, that's so cool. That's so cool. So then we do another take, cut, literally cut. He like rushes. It's like far, it's not that close. He rushes over, I don't know, at least like 14, 15 feet away, goes down, grabs something, comes right up to me, shoves it in my hand and says, now you have one. Oh, what a sweetheart. Jesus you know, Christ. And I got it on my desk over there, and you just go like, what the hell, man? You're, you're like, yeah. It just makes you go like, you, 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 I'm just so happy that I met you. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm, just so, I'm just so happy that sometimes your heroes, you know, really. They're the real deal. Yeah. They're, they actually are the real deal. Yeah. They're, they're not. You know, they say they never meet your heroes. And it's like, 
actually, no, with this one, uh, it worked out really, really, really well. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just fucking great. It was, it was, it was, it was really cool. Well, buddy, um, I guess I should ask, do you have anything coming up? Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, where folks can find you online, stuff like that? I mean... Uh, I, I mean, you know, the thing is, everything's starting up again, right? So auditions yeah. are starting up again, I guess. And so I'm going up for all kinds of things. But no, I don't have anything in the pipeline at the moment, especially not um, theater-wise. Are you doing it's, any... It's just, are you, yeah, well, that, I guess, the, the little rumblings that they'll be back in September, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. Michael C. Benz. At Michael C. Benz. I don't really post very often, but occasionally I do. But, but, you know. um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, I love you, man. Oh, I love you too, Claude. Has this been helpful? Have I... Have, yeah. I, have, I, have <laughs> Has it been helpful? Have I answered questions in any useful way? This, this has been this, wonderful. This has been this has been a very very long interview. I don't you know I I want to keep all of it. We'll we'll have to see uh, you know. But there's it's this is going to be very hard to figure out uh, how I don't want to cut down a second of it. So it's just been uh, well, great. Well, well, but I think yeah yeah. But I mean some of it, especially especially at the beginning, I feel like I was just rambling and rambling and rambling. No, that's what that's what, that's what you feel do. Feel free to cut. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm, we needed a good catch up anyway. It's, uh, mm. it's great to see. I'm glad you're healthy and safe and, you know, uh, Likewise, you too. Give my best to, uh, Chris and also to your mom and to the whole rest of the family. Oh, likewise, buddy. And, to, and, and, and you too, to your family and to Catherine and the boys and everything. Dum, 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 dum. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, you're my sister. Abby, I love you, and I'm looking forward to your notes. Give us a subscribe and those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our merch for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle, at Things Are Going Great For Me. Stay tuned, because we've got nine more incredible episodes premiering every Thursday, including interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Kevin Avery, Ira Madison III, Corbin Reed, Brendan McDonald, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, and Shelley Bala, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Sierra Hauser. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. I don't often talk to God. I prefer to talk to Sidney Pollack. See you next time.